What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip of Tales from the Crypt. Had the pleasure of sitting back down with co-founder of Start9 Labs, Matt Hill, to dive into the latest iteration of their Embassy OS. We're at version 3. I've been testing out the version 3 beta. I've been very happy with it. I'm very excited to see Start9 Labs build out this suite. Um... I'm not going to go too much into detail because we go into a lot of detail in the episode. I'm very excited that this company exists and that they're pushing self-sovereign computing into the world. I'm very happy to start building out my embassy suite uh, and personalize it for my daily needs. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App's here to make stacking sats easy for you. It's very easy to stack sats via the Cash App. You can DCA in the sats. You can buy uh, on impulse. You can set price targets that you want to uh, initiate a buy and make it very easy. On top of that, they're, they're going to be one of the first major exchanges, from what I understand, to allow uh, users to send to Taproot addresses. Pay to Taproot is coming December 1st on the Cash App. Cash App can even be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers. You can get your bank, uh, excuse me, your paychecks direct deposited into the app. If you haven't downloaded the app yet, make sure you use the code StackingSats. It's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. This group was also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. And the way they do this best is via their Vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig quorum. You hold two keys, Unchained holds one. You always have full control over your UTXOs. If you have those two keys, you can move them out of your vault whenever you so please. Uh, if you're ever in a pinch, though, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig transaction uh, for you. Uh, they have a white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero knowledge to having a, a vault set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in it. With this white glove concierge service, they're going to hold your hand. They're going to have multiple video conference calls with you. They're going to get you comfortable with multi-sig. They're going to get you comfortable with their Volt product. They're going to send you hardware wallets. They're going to help you get those set up, those passphrase, excuse me, those seed phrases backed up, teach you about passphrases, set up your Volt, make sure you have the the redeem scripts and the derivation pass backed up. Then, they're, again, they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into the vault tell them the tftc sent you and you'll get fifty dollars off that package uh they have an incredible suite of products and content beyond that so go check out everything at unchained.com this rip was also brought to you by our friends at compass mining compass mining is here to get more individuals into the hashing game they want as many individuals owning asics as possible <clears throat> and uh, the best way to do this via compasses go to compassmining.io and then you can purchase an asic and then you can have it sent to your house and what they have on the back end is an at-home mining support team that is going to speak with you uh they're going to get you your asic number one and then they're going to teach you how to plug it in it's not straightforward you need very specific electrical infrastructure at set up at your house or wherever you plan on uh plugging those miners in and so the, the compass team is there to walk you through that process to teach you how to connect to your miner how to get into your miners ip how to point that uh, hash rate at a mining pool so that you can start streaming sats to a wallet of your choice compass mining also has incredible content on the mining space including a podcast and a newsletter uh, zach vol and will foxley have been doing an incredible job with that they also have a great docu-series or excuse me a mini doc on uh, the navajo 
nation adopting Bitcoin mining on their lands. So go check all this out at compassmining.io, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Brains, Brains, Brains. B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com is their website. They're the team behind Slush Pool, which is the oldest Bitcoin mining pool in existence. Been around since 2010, has mined over 1.25 million Bitcoins since uh, it launched and stayed true to Bitcoin throughout the whole time. Slush Pool had a major update earlier this summer. Uh, and then, so that's Brains is behind that. And then they're behind Brains OS Plus firmware, auto-tuning firmware, which helps you stack more sats with your hash. If you have an ASIC that is compatible, Ooh, excuse me, a little burp there. That is uh, that has the ability to have Brains OS Plus firmware downloaded on it, and you're not using that. Another burp coming. Excuse me. Uh, you're leaving sats on the table, okay? So if you have an ASIC, it's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware, and you're not using it, you are leaving sats on the table. Make sure you download that firmware uh, if it's available. Also, the Brains team just launched uh, insights.brains.com, I-N-S-I-G-T... <laughs> I-N-S-I-G-H-T-S dot brains dot com. Uh, this is a product uh, that was born uh, from frustration of, of Daniel Frumps at, at Brains, who during the last halving, he was sitting there. He was like, ooh, I'm going to like wait for block 630,000 to go. And I'm just going to see like what's going on in the mining industry. He had like a bunch of tabs open, dozens of tabs, looking for very particular stats on the mining industry and different metrics and that and it was getting his browser all slow and it was getting his computer all hot and it was getting him all frustrated and he said you know what i need to consolidate all this information and the brains team has done that via their insights product so again go check that out at insights.brains.com enjoy this rip with matt hill and enjoy your life freaks you only got one Tiki. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. We have sovereignty in a box here is this what this is is this all it takes to be a sovereign individual these days is an embassy and you still have to do some thinking on your own that's true yeah freaks i'm sitting down with matt hill what's up founder of start nine labs second time on the podcast matt also co-founder also co-founder yes just want to make sure they're yeah shout out. <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> what's going on we had a little pre Interview discussion. I'm a little, not spooked out, but I uh, just finished up a conversation with Whitney Webb. And it's always like, oh, God, after I speak with her, I'm like, we need to work. We need to work. We need to work to protect ourselves against uh, an existential dread that seems to be creeping into every aspect of our lives. And I'm very happy that uh, you are here a little over an hour after we finish recording to give me hope that we can break free from the madness of this world. Um, we definitely feel the same, and it's why we work as hard as we do. Um, the attitude in the Start9 office, and well, we also have remote members of the company, um, is very urgent. Um, when this came about, you know, we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted it to be in Bitcoin, 
Um, but once we understood the nature of this problem and set out to solve it, it has been uh, a bit of a race. It feels like a race. Um, we work all day and all night in order to, you know, fight back against what is this seemingly never-ending centralization force uh, of technology. Yeah. And so, how would you dissect the state of the world right now? You're in a race. You're racing to build out uh, Start Nine Labs and the Embassy product. Are you getting more anxious as time goes on? Uh, I have my good days and my bad. I oscillate a little bit. Some days I'm more pessimistic about the direction of the world and the future, and other days I'm more optimistic. And, uh, you know, that off, that also ties into just kind of how much progress we're making. Like when our technology is working really well and we're making great progress, and I'm like, okay, we, we can win this. We can we can do this. Um, but but it's not easy, right? We're, we're, we're not, you know, putting some new app on a piece of hardware. It, it, we're trying to invent a new computing paradigm that can service the needs of a decentralized future and a sovereign individual, because right now the, your computers and the internet are not accommodative to that future. Um, in fact, it's racing in the opposite direction. So um, we need a new internet, we need a new computing paradigm. And those are very bold statements, but you know, it is possible. Yeah, yeah, no, it hit me with many bold statements already right before we hit record. We're not going up against other individuals building sovereign stacks in a box. We're going up against the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons of the world. We have pretty big Goliaths that, that we need to go after. Yeah, that's right. The The good news is, is that they're not doing themselves any favors either. Um, you know, these things, these centralized systems don't last. Things fall apart. The center does not hold um, they're sort of laying the groundwork of their own demise uh, in real time. However, it's not enough to say, well, that's not going to work in the long run. What happens between now and the long run, right? How much darkness? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Foundation series, you know, acclaimed sci-fi series. Um, personally, I don't think it's the best sci-fi ever written. I do appreciate the series. But, you know, one thing that I, I really enjoy about that series is the, the overarching goal of Harry Seldon in the early books, which is to shorten the darkness. There's nothing that can stop the collapse, but the goal is to minimize the destruction and shorten the darkness. And to do that, you have to build a parallel system alongside the collapsing system in real time. And these things don't happen overnight. A lot of people talk about collapse, like it's like one day everything's fine and the next day there's rubble on the ground. And that's not what the collapse of society looks like. It's a gradual decay. And we're right in the middle of it. The building is halfway down right now. We are in the middle of a multi-decade, possibly multi-century collapse. <laughs> and we are in a race now to build the parallel system like Bitcoin did for the financial system. But we need a parallel alternative computing model for Earth. And we need to do it now before it collapses too much and too many people get hurt. Yeah, that's another another thing that Whitney and I were talking about. Like people are gonna get hurt, like literally physically hurt. People are gonna die as this system collapses. And, it, and, and I go, I'm pretty convinced that there's a controlled demolition on their way. Like the powers that be, whoever they are, whoever's got control of the most powerful and impactful institutions of our time. I think they recognize that uh, the center does not hold and their systems are collapsing and they're racing as well to 
build a new system that that we can all transition into that they still control. Um, so you have maybe almost like three systems going in parallel: the one that's crumbling, the one they want to usher us into, and the one built by sovereign individuals that that tries to get away from the incumbent system and 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 the new system that the the institutional powers they are trying to build. I completely agree. I also think that there's another group that isn't trying to build anything at all, and they're jumping ship. So a lot of the confusion that we perceive from the, you know, uh, those in power today is because some are trying to build a new system and maintain con- multi-generational control going forward, and others are trying to grab as much money off the floor as they can before the gig is up. Um, and so they actually disagree with each other. And then there's computing factions about who's going to control. And so. I actually, on my optimistic days, look at this and I'm like, oh, this is great. They're all fighting each other for scraps and control. And and we can sort of sneak through the back door and offer a completely, uh, you know, novel alternative that they, at least to date, have not taken very seriously. Yeah. Right? They're starting to. They're st- I, I think... <laughs> I think they're really starting to, right? It's actually, I'm writing a piece for the American mind and the, I guess the, the prompt that they gave me is how to protect Bitcoin from regulation. And that, and that I sort of had this aha moment where while writing the piece that he, the powers that be have somewhat ignored Bitcoin, specifically treated as like, ah, it's nothing to worry, not, nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about. But now they're like, oh shit. This is something that's here. Maybe we can't kill it, so we have to regulate it. And that's what we're seeing with the infrastructure bill, with the onerous laws that are um, getting thrust into that, that are specific to, to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies at large. And then uh, you're seeing more focus from the supranational, unelected bureaucrats, like the people at the Financial Action Task Force, to begin attempting to find ways to thrust their regulations onto the Bitcoin network, particularly as they revolve around KYC AML data collection. And taxes. And taxes as well. Yes. Correct. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the tactic is actually quite effective. I don't want to call it brilliant, but it is effective in that it's not this outright Bitcoin is illegal stance. It's just this, we're just going to make it increasingly difficult for you right? The on-ramps, the off-ramps, the taxation, the regulation, the repercussions for violating the, you know, whatever arbitrary set of rules come down the pipeline. It's just going to make it so that most people are just like, eh, that's too inconvenient to do, right? And you're seeing that even with like the vaccine and mask mandate stuff around the world today too. It's not like, it's not just some some outright rule of like, you go to jail if you don't, it's just, life is just going to get harder and harder and harder. And that works. It wears on people right? You just eventually get grind down to, to a round, you know, what used to be a, a needle point is now a, a dull, you know. A dime. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. It's just a... a and, it, and it works. And it doesn't work as well on everybody, right? Like, we're going to fight tooth and nail until there's nothing left. But um, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. I agree. And how do we pre- help prevent it from getting to that point is helping, uh, again, another... I'm happy that we're having these two conversations back to back because we can draw on each of them. Uh, having people recognize that they're being manipulated psychologically uh, so that the powers that be that want to usher us into the system that they're designing uh, are able to do so successfully. They're, they're creating psychological trauma 
to wear people down, to dull their emotions, to dull their uh, ability to think logically um, so that they will surrender and, and just walk into the panopticon freely, um, which is uh, as much building is extremely important and is the most important thing. It, I would argue just as important as educating people like, hey, you are being manipulated. Uh, <laughs> these people are using tactics that have been public for, for decades to get you in a state of uh, hysteria or uh, extreme worry that will that will make you more impressionable and and more docile, if you will. Yeah, um, weakening morale over time through steady propaganda and increasing red tape uh, and sludge is a very effective. Okay, like you can win wars by demoralizing the enemy by constantly dropping leaf leaflets uh, from the planes that say. You know, while you're fighting this war, your significant other is at home, you know, dating the enemy. It's like, it just, you know it's BS, but if you see it every day, you just start to wonder what you're fighting for and is it even worth the fight anymore? And so, again, these are the really bad days for me, which it sounds like you're having a little bit of one of those after your <laughs> conversation this morning. Um, but on the, on, the, on the brighter days, I, I'm more in line with the sovereign individual thesis and, and roadmap where it's like, these things are just going to, they, they can't compete. Right? This is a totally foreign, unforeseen technology that is sweeping the world by storm right now, and they cannot fight it. They can pretend, they can, but it's all a bluff. It's all a front. They know the gig's up, and this thing's just gonna wipe the table with them. Right? And by this thing, I don't just mean Bitcoin. I mean decentralized, open technology. Right? And. And that is where we kind of step in here, is it's, we're rounding out the Bitcoin story. Bitcoin cannot be the lone hero fighting the entire army alone, right? We need to round out the decentralized future with technology in general, right? The, the internet as is, and the uh, server client architecture as is, is not conducive to a viable future for Bitcoin. Bitcoin cannot live on a centralized internet. Not as Bitcoin, anyway. No. Right? If there's one node running on one server controlled by one entity, it's not really Bitcoin anymore. The code is the same, but it doesn't accomplish the same goals. No, it doesn't have the same censorship-resistant assurances that are provided when you're running yeah. in a more distributed fashion. And I think consensus rules could be changed more easily. and you know, It's just a surveillance tool at that point. Yeah. Bitcoin in the hands of a few people on a few servers, which, again, it's not going to happen. But just it is sort of a, you know, status wet dream. It's a, yeah. <laughs> maybe not as much with Taproot anymore, but this like giant public open ledger of every transaction on Earth. Man, if you can just pin identities to those things, it's perfect. You know, you can. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is why we need as many people running nodes as possible. Freaks, go run your node if you're not already. And I guess so. We've had you on the show before. We've talked about the sovereign stack. I don't want to repeat. Eh, fuck it. Let's, uh, we can repeat because I think it's an important message and it's one that should be drilled into people's head. Like you need to start building a self-sovereign stack. Bitcoin just being a part of that. Bitcoin is a tool and you need to use that tool and then you probably need to use it with other types of things. So let's um, explain the suite of tools that you're providing users uh, uh, that are buying the embassy straight out of, of the box. What, what do we have and why do we have these particular tools? Um, yeah, so 
what's what's really cool and also unique about the embassy is that it doesn't come with any software pre-installed. It actually has no opinions about what you should do with your own personal server. Um, we we have a marketplace um, that again is not like pre-coded, hard-coded, uh, you know, um, lines that then fetch containers from Docker Hub or something like that. Like we have a marketplace that we ourselves host binaries on. And then we have a marketplace ecosystem where anyone in the world after this next release will be able to spin up a marketplace such that even start nine is not a central point of, of contact or failure for your ability to uh, uh, discover, obtain, download, install software onto your server. Um, so that's a huge difference. Uh, you is, know, that, is that almost like a bit torrent within the... Uh... Embassy ecosystem, or uh, no? It won't torrent. It, it, you'll just download, like, yeah. but but anyone can spin up a marketplace. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, effectively, it's going to do the same thing, right? Yeah. Like you can get this software from anyone running uh, a, an ins- an instance of the marketplace that conforms to the protocol spec. Um, and so we are already aware of multiple individuals who will be spinning up, we'll call it, you know, competing or alternative marketplaces to start nine uh, within the next few weeks. Um, we don't expect them to be widely used. Like Start9 is going to be the, the default one and it'll be very easy for users to switch over to these other ones. But as long as we are, you know, sending the proper binaries that are signed by the, the developers that you trust and we don't, you know, violate that promise, then people won't have a reason to switch away from our marketplace unless we are refusing to host something that someone wants to run. So let's say there's some note-taking app that you're just intent on running, like you and your wife keep a grocery list and you don't want Google to know what groceries you're going to buy. So mm-hmm. you have your own self-sovereign grocery list server running at home that you access over Tor, okay? Um, and Start Nine's like, we don't really <laughs> like that software. We think it's crap. Uh, we've tested it. It doesn't work well. Uh, so we're not going to put it on our marketplace because we want users to come to our marketplace and feel like what they get there is going to work and work well and that it's been packaged properly. But there's some other marketplaces like, I love that app, and I think anyone should be able to you know, run this piece of crap software if they want to. And so they host it. You switch over to their marketplace, download it, install it on your embassy, and it'll run just fine. Um, so Start9 really cannot stop you from one, running anything you want to run uh, on your server. And sky's the limit. Right, so we designed this. I should say, redesigned this. So part of the reason I'm here today and wanted you to to play with this is because we are now entering the third version of Embassy OS. So V1 was launched in February of 2020. Um, it had a marketplace. There was only three services on it. It was Bitcoin, Bitwarden, and Cups, which is our own P2P uh, Tor-based uh, instant messenger mm-hmm. for direct messaging. Um, since then, it expanded greatly. Uh, we launched version 2, 0.2.0, in, I believe it was September or October of 2020, so about seven months later. Um, and that was a complete rewrite of V1, right? We learned a bunch with V1, and then we wrote V2, and it's it's been in the wild now for over a year, and it has been has performed admirably, and embassy owners are very happy with the experience, and, um, and we rewrote that operating system. We actually took everything we learned from V2 <laughs> And we wrote it from scratch. It's not some simple iteration. We designed a new OS um, using all the hard lessons we learned over two years of trying to build, turn grandma into a sysadmin. Um, and uh, O3O is here. It's almost here. Uh, it's, it's on that. It's you, right here. You have it. Um, and it works, but it's still in beta. Um, it, we, you know, we're counting in weeks. As um, soon as we feel confident enough that all the bugs have been fleshed out, we will release it to the general public. 
So what are the main lessons from version one and version two uh, that you took into version three and sort of reworked? Cool, yeah. Uh, modularity, scalability, uh, transparency into the systems themselves, the, the services themselves. So modularity is absolutely key when it comes to something like this. You cannot build a fragile system, okay? So um, if, for instance, Embassy came pre-installed with a bunch of services, and anytime you wanted to update any of those services or add a new one, you had to update your operating system, this is not just inconvenient, it's actually a vulnerability because basically anything can be snuck into any of those services. You have no choice, right? So there's a bug in LND that is gonna, you're gonna lose money if you don't update LND, right? But to update LND, you have to update every single service on your server. And one of those has its own bug that you don't want. It's like now you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Your whole system is fragile, right? It's a fragile system because it's not modular. It has to be generalized and modular such that you, the individual, choose what you want to run, run only what you want to run, and then can update those things individually. Um, second, scalability, just performance. The thing needs to be designed to be able to handle the kind of compute and storage that these services need at scale and running 25 of them in parallel, right? So we, we actually removed the entire section of the code base uh, that was written in Haskell, not, not because you know Haskell is, is horribly non-performant, it's just that it's not as performant as Rust, right? So we took um, the entire section of Embassy OS that was written in Haskell and we replaced it with Rust. Uh, and then we took the entire Rust section and rewrote it to be better. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so the entire back end of Embassy OS is written in Rust, uh, and the entire front end is, is a TypeScript Angular application that serves through the browser. Yeah, uh, Rust is considered like the creme de la creme of programming languages. It's definitely days. the hot kid on the block, yeah. Rust is, is super performant, it's strongly typed, um, it is in vogue, right? Like, <laughs> there's just a lot of people wanting to learn it who do know it. We happen to have an excellent Rust developer. I mean, uh, Aiden McClelland is the primary architect of Embassy OS, uh, and in particular, Embassy OS 030. Um, it's it's his baby. Uh, you know, the entire backend portion of the operating system, and he is a, he's an incredible, incredible developer and thinker. Um, and so, yeah, Rust was an obvious choice for us. We had the guy. It's the language, and it accomplishes all the goals that we needed it to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so, it's more modular. It's more scalable. Transparency. And, and transparency yeah. is less. So, what, and so it's not just transparency, it's, it's granular control, mm -hmm. right? We needed to empower the user more. There was too much that was happening by magic, too much that was obfuscated, which is kind of like the goal. You just, it should just feel like magic, right? But it needs to feel like magic, but you can stop the thing, right? Like in the early days of elevators, I heard this anecdote one time and it always stuck with me. Um, is that when people were terrified to take elevators back when they were being invented, they realized that, but just putting an emergency stop button on the elevator made people suddenly feel comfortable taking them, right? Even if it didn't do anything, it was just the presence of the button gave the person a feeling of control. Obviously it does do something as does everything we build into our system, but it will just work by magic, but all the introspection is there for you, right? So one of the biggest features that we're proud of um, totally unique to our system too, by the way. And one of the hardest things to do as a sysadmin, as a DevOps engineer maintaining servers and server-side software is to monitor the health of the services running on your system, right? For whether they're running out of memory, whether the network interface goes down, 
Uh, maybe there's just a bug and the thing isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. And the only way that you would know this is if you built, wrote some scripts that would, you know, perform, you know, chronological, you know, cron, cron jobs against the service saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Mm -hmm. And if anything's ever not okay, it would alert you or something like that. Well, that's a really hard thing to do. Or as the original Casa node did, and uh, you had to like actually ping it yourself. You had to like manually go in there and be like, are you okay? Is everything working <laughs> fine? And even then it couldn't give you a precise answer. It would just sort of generally be like, I think everything's okay. So what we did with, with O3O is service developers, uh, we call them, so let me be clear about this. Service developers are people who write the things that run on Embassy, mm -hmm. Bitcoin. So Bitcoin Core, right, runs, you know, the, at least one Bitcoin implementation and the one that we currently offer on, on Embassy uh, on our marketplace. They are service developers. They built an app slash service that can run on a server, okay? We also have this new thing that is being invented, which is a package developer. This is the person who takes the service, like Bitcoin Core, and packages it for Embassy OS. And in the early days, this was really easy because we were basically just like taking whatever Docker container was available for Bitcoin Core and like telling the command line, run that thing, okay? Mm -hmm. But that in no way solves the problem that we're trying to solve, which is to turn an average person into a sysadmin because it only works if everything is working and everything is perfect. But if you want to configure it, oh, well, go ahead and SSH in, hop into the Bitcoin.com file, change this value, but don't put a string in, make sure it's a number, otherwise the whole system will crash. And oh, now that it's running, if your RPC interface goes down or your P2P interface goes down, you're kind of screwed and nobody's there to help you. It like, it's almost like a lie. It's like, oh, you're a sysadmin now. But if anything goes wrong or you want to do anything to it, you're sort of shit out of luck. Yeah. And we're like, that's not the, you can, that won't scale to average people. Only hobbyists and you know early adopters and tech nerds will ever do something like that. Um, so we wanted uh, to, to make this service more usable by an average person. And to do that, you have to have a translation layer. So you have like Bitcoin Core is the service that's running, right? And then you have the user. Mm -hmm. How does the user interact with Bitcoin Core when they have no idea how to do that? Well, there's a new kind of developer now. The person who packaged Bitcoin Core for Embassy OS uses our own configuration system and domain-specific language to translate between human and Bitcoin Core such that the human is doing things that feel very normal, like editing something in a settings menu. And there's these really fancy, colorful health checks that fill the dashboard. So you view your Bitcoin service, and it's like, you know, my P2P interface, checkmark, it's looking good. RPC interface, checkmark, looking good. You know, I'm 75% uh, synced. That's not great if you want to do these other things. And mm -hmm. so it's all there for you. And you didn't need to understand how to do that. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So did you guys, you, you mentioned RPC. That's, that's what I envisioned. Like it, you guys start nine embassy team is, is creating a library that, that calls on these RPC calls or creates a UI on top of them that so, makes it easy for you guys to interact or yep. users to interact with. So embassy OS offers a generalized API. Right? So it has an API interface that says, okay, if you're a package developer, if you're somebody who wants to package up Bitcoin or LND or C-Lightning or a non-Bitcoin service, a note-taking app, whatever it is, you are going to decide the user experience. You're like, all right, someone who's using this service is going to want to edit the .com file, the Bitcoin.com file. Mm -hmm. Embassy OS has an API for that. So you would, as the package developer, say, I want to give the user granular access to the Bitcoin.com file. I want it to be validated. I want numbers to be validated as numbers, strings to be validated as strings. Um, and I want, you know, 
uh, dependence of Bitcoin to be aware of Bitcoin so that if Bitcoin is not done syncing, LND will, will actually be unhappy and say, well, I'm not going to quite work either. Yeah. Right. And then things that depend on LND, like Sphinx chat or something like that, will actually say, well, I'm still waiting on Bitcoin to sync because LND told me that it's not quite there yet. So it's this transitive health monitoring and dependency management system that is kind of the essence of being a sysadmin, right? When, they, when you go train to be a systems administrator for server-side software, you're learning how to, you know, install services, uh, manage, install and manage dependencies, uh, perform health checks, configure these things. There's kind of this standard set of things that you need to know how to do, and all of them are difficult and complex. Um, and so what we did is we took all of those things and built tools, a software development kit and generalized API so that anyone who's packaging these services can take advantage of, of these tools to then dilute the experience down to familiar buttons on an interface that really anyone can do and it won't let you screw it up because it has these protections built in. So you can envision a world in which you have different uh, embassy users offering different marketplaces with different user experiences for different, for the same app. For the same service. For the same service. Yes. Like I could get Bitcoin from your marketplace or Bitcoin from his marketplace and the experience might be different, right? Nothing can tamper with the underlying service. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is still Bitcoin. The consensus rules still apply. But how you experience Bitcoin could be different. For example, uh, services can be packaged up with any number of interfaces and they're arbitrary in nature. So for instance, I could package up Bitcoin Core and add a user interface to it, right? So if you mm -hmm. get Bitcoin Core from my marketplace, there will be a launch button in the UI that'll launch a node dashboard that'll give you all sorts of statistics and you know uh, information about your node. Um, and whereas a different instance of Bitcoin might not offer that. Yeah, so you you can work on the Bitcoin Core GUI when the core developers don't want to. Or, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We could slap a GUI onto Bitcoin Core and offer it as a user interface on the on the Bitcoin service on Embassy. Now we don't have the time to do that right now, but anyone on Earth is welcome to do this, right? So the Bitcoin Core wrapper, we call them wrappers in our GitHub repository, right? But the wrapper uh, is is an open source MIT thing. So it's like anyone can go in there and just be like, I'm going to improve Bitcoin's experience on Embassy add a user interface, PR it in, and suddenly everyone on earth will have access to this interface. This is incredibly fascinating, incredibly bullish. I can't stop, I don't uh, I'll take this the wrong way, but I can't stop thinking of like MySpace, what MySpace was. You're able to go and just get like different HTML, CSS templates that would allow you to create your profile and make it look away, have an aesthetic, and maybe other people's hat as well, um, but you could tweak it a little bit and it seems like it. so you're basically creating the ability to let uh, uh, different aesthetics, dif pe people with different aesthetic uh, preferences, mm -hmm. sort of find find their their way to use Bitcoin Core, their way to use Cups, their way to use sure. any now, of these things. Now, let's say, for instance, uh, there's a common um, command that someone would want to run on the Bitcoin CLI, like uh, resync blockchain. Okay, so you want to like resync from a particular block height, right? And you want to do this because, you know, whatever, you want to capture some funds in a wallet. Um, maybe you're running a pruned node and you, because you don't have full archival, if you want to add an old wallet, you have to go resync from the height that that wallet was first, um, where that UTXO first showed up. Mm -hmm. 
So to do that uh, in the normal world, you would have to, you know, uh, get on the, the command line, uh, SSH into your box, get on the command line, go to Bitcoin CLI, run the command, et cetera. And you just lost like 99% of the population. But as a service developer, or I should say, sorry, a package developer for Embassy OS, you can say a lot of people are going to want to do this. So uh, Embassy OS offers an, uh, uh, an API for actions. They're called actions. And developers can define actions. An action would be resync blockchain, and it can take any arbitrary input. So resync blockchain, for instance, would take a block height at which you would like to begin the resync. So to a totally non-technical person, now they don't need to know anything about SSH, nothing about the command line, nothing. They just go into their Bitcoin page, click actions, and it lists all the available actions. And one of them is resync blockchain. So they click that. It says, what height would you like to resync from? You enter the height, you hit enter, and it's done. And the whole system now flips back into like a sinking state. LND suddenly is like, whoa, 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 I'm not happy. So it goes pause and it, it like... It just does all of this, right? It's actually hard to communicate the the sort of complexity and sophistication of Embassy OS. Like, it, there has never been an operating system that gives a user this kind of power and non-technical control over self-hosted uh, software without third parties, without trusting any third party. Start9 is not involved in this transaction at all, ever. Well, that's what I want to get into because you'll commonly hear when people talk about like, all right, we need to distribute as much as we can. We need to leverage as much open source software as we can. We need to get uh, these technologies in the hands of individuals. The biggest knock you'll hear is like, it's just too hard. Like grandma's never yeah. going to be able to do it. Like, and it seems like you guys are getting a, uh, to a point where it's really not that hard. Like, do you think it'll be like, is grandma going to be able to run her own self-sovereign stack in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I was going to say not on 030, right? The, the new operating system that we're putting out right now is not grandma ready. It is, it's also not super techie hobbyist uh, limited. It's the next rung of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it really expands the number of people who can do this seamlessly uh, by an order of magnitude. Uh, and we know how we get to the next rung of people and then the next rung. And by the time grandma's even thinking about running a personal server or a cluster of personal servers that are all communicating with each other and governing the hardware in your home, um, it will be ready for her, right? We're not ready for them and they're not ready for us yet. But as the desire to have this sort of independence. We, right, we don't even talk about sovereignty as much anymore. We talk about computing independence, right? When you pick up your phone and you do anything at all, you are essentially raising your hand and asking permission to do everything that you're doing. You want to send me a message? Ask Telegram for permission first. And you don't experience that, right? You don't have to actually type them a message saying, can I send Matt a message? But the server is, per, you know, it is permissioned with every single request. Uh, and that's just a very childlike existence. Right? It's a very dependent uh, existence. Like you can't do ordinary things without constantly asking permission or paying the toll. And um, so as more and more people want that kind of power and independence, um, it sort of expands outward from Bitcoiners. It's sort of where it started, right? Now there's people who may have talked about this for a long time, but Bitcoiners were the first ones that like really did it. Aside from total debts, right? Like just you know, people have been running their own servers for decades, but mm -hmm. it didn't actually creep into any kind of meaningful movement until Bitcoin. 
And now it's emanating out from Bitcoin into, you know, anarchist and libertarian uh, circles and then outward to people who just like freedom and then outward to and, and it's going to continue to emanate outward. And so the technology needs to be ready for those groups when it hits there, because when the next group is ready, they're going to get online and say, how do I run a personal server? How do I self host? And we need to make sure that we are there waiting for them with open arms, not just with the technology, but with the support network, the documentation, right? Like this, is, this isn't just a piece of tech, it's a whole ecosystem of support. Um, and that's really hard to scale, yeah. really hard to scale, but we know how to do it. How do we do it? How do we scale support? Yeah. So, well, first of all, you can't limit it to start nine, right? So, so like start nine is literally not going to be able to do one-on-one -on -one tech support with every single person who calls in and asks questions. And that's not because the product isn't working and they're having a problem. It's because they want to understand. Mm -hmm. they, they want to, they, there's a hunger for knowledge about this. I can't tell you how many times we get hit up on email, on Telegram, or me personally, uh, and members of our team. And they're just like, so tell me about self-hosting. Tell me about Bitcoin. How does lightning work? And we're just like, we can't do this, right? Like they come to us because it's running on our device. But we're like, I, we cannot educate everyone on everything about sovereignty, self-hosting, and digital independence. Um, and so we are leaning very heavily and will increasingly be supporting those who do. Okay. Right? We are going to scale by being benefactors of open source and educational individuals, organizations, um, through our sales, right? So we, we have plans to grow a movement, not just a, a company. Well, that's... Extremely encouraging because that's exactly what we need is a movement. Yeah, it's, we've talked about this before. We need to relearn and unlearn and then learn a new ways to interact with technologies that, that we interact with on a daily basis. We're transitioning into a digital age. Most people like we're already at, we are in the digital age, but we're in the very early stages and one can make a very strong argument, a very convincing argument. And one that I think is becoming undeniable that we have fucked up on the design of of the internet, particularly the uh, the the client server relationship that you were describing earlier. Um, yeah, and and you know, I look, I think about this a lot actually, because um, you say fuck up, right? And yeah, it's it's true, but why? Um, I actually don't blame anyone for what happened. Were there limits? It yeah, it was hard. Like yeah. you, it is unreasonable to expect. Uh, uh, an individual, an, uh, just an ordinary Joe, to be able to do systems administration. It's just freaking hard, right? And even the early days doing client administration was hard. Like you, the, the early computers were only accessible to geeks and hobbyists, right? It wasn't until Windows and, you know, uh, Apple came along that personal computers became accessible to non-technical individuals. Because what did they do? They put a graphical user interface on top of the command line interface so that people could point, click, and use objects to navigate the, op navigate the computer. It was a simple but brilliant insight, and they pulled it off. They did a great job. But server administration was even harder, and it was profitable to not offer the graphical mm -hmm. user interface for that. So they were like, you know what? We'll just give you these clients. We'll run the servers. And this is how we got into the mess that we're in, is because the servers is where all the money is at. It's where all the power is at. It's where the control is at, right? Your phone is just a remote control, mm -hmm. right? I, I, the saying, it's, it, a server is just someone else's computer, right? But I think it is more visceral 
to say your computer is just a remote control. It's the same concept, but it's sort of like no longer feels like yours, right? No. You open up your phone, it's a remote control. Every button you push is just operating a computer somewhere else, unless you're using your calculator with Wi-Fi off, right? But you can't do much. It gets really dumb if you turn off the internet. That's yeah, got like a, an invisible transmission line right to Apple's headquarters Probably, that they can cut you I off don't. at any. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so we had to basically repeat history, right? In the positive sense. Like we had to go do what those early tech giants did for clients, for personal computers. And we have to do it now for personal servers. And it's such a, it's such a, thing to let slide by to say something like that. Like, oh, they're creating a graphical user interface for a personal server. That doesn't ring as some huge thing, but neither did creating a graphical user interface for a personal computer at the time for two reasons. One is because nobody knew what the hell they even wanted a personal computer for. Great, you, you slapped a graphical user interface on this, hunk, on this you know, hunk of metal that nobody wants or needs. Now you have four of them probably, or more, right? You have personal computers in your pocket, on your wrist, in your home, whatever. And nobody even saw it saw the reason for having one, for a family, right? And we say the same thing today. It's a graphical user interface for a personal server. No big deal. Until you recognize how big of a problem centralized, non-personal servers have become in the world, the bigger the problem, right, the bigger the solution. Um, we think that this is not the, but one of the biggest problems facing humanity's future right now is the centralized nature of digital communications and data. It is a massive threat, existential threat to our future. And the only way to solve it is to shatter centralized servers into a billion pieces and give one to every person and put it in their homes. And if you do that, if you even get close to that, now you don't even need the ISPs because you can start to mesh around them. You actually build a new internet brick by brick, piece by piece, in a very organic grassroots way. Others who have talked about building a new internet are always talking about software. Right? Always. Yeah, it's always just some like, all right, everyone download this software and we'll have like some new internet. And I'm like, but you haven't actually solved the problem and you have a network effect problem. Nobody is going to do this unless everyone does it. Nobody wants to join your social network unless everyone's on your social network. Chicken and egg, classic networking problem, right? We don't have that problem. Because there's because benefits as an individual to running this. You have personal, selfish benefit for running this device on your own. You don't give a shit if anyone else in the world has one. So mm. if we can provide that selfish personal benefit to each individual, but then in any given geographic region, if critical mass is reached, it's just a software download and boom, you're meshed. You can mesh with this? Not yet. Not yet. Eventually. Embassy OS is built for this future. Yeah. It's not... The future yet, right? You have to build incrementally. You're getting but there. We are building with this vision in mind. And it's not just meshing. It's not just a new internet, right? We, what we are building in mind with is the IoT future too. Well, you were mentioning this before we hit record. That's just what I was about to ask you. Like you the IoT world that we're growing into right now is very scary, but there is. Uh, and so because of that scary picture that's painted with the uh, centralized architecture of the current world of IoT that's being built out, many people just throw IoT out uh, with the bathwater because it's like, ah, oh, this is bad. It's one step too far. And therefore IoT is bad. But you're envisioning a future in which you design the Internet of Things and how you would like to interact with it and you do it in a self-sovereign fashion. Um, correct. Yeah. You, you know, the anti, you know, uh, centralized surveillance um, 
picture has always been to go to the woods, <laughs> right? <laughs> Abandon technology and just go live in the woods. And there is some, you know, uh, what do we call it? Like uh, ideal there that is mm. that is attractive, even to me on some days. I'm just like, the woods it is. You know? <laughs> um, but then it feels like going backwards. We need to go to the stars, not the woods, right? Completely agree. We're not going back. We're going forward. So how do we move forward without the without the dystopian flavor? Um, it's not by abandoning technology. It's by implementing decentralized self-sovereign technology. And um, that's just not easy because it's a new idea, right? It, 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 was, it didn't even, wasn't even a strong idea until the internet started to come about, but, but it wasn't really implemented in a scalable, useful way until Bitcoin. Bitcoin kind of pierced the, the shield, right? It really did put a hole in the system. And it showed us how ideologically, if not technically, because it is both, but it also showed us the it showed us the rhetoric that's needed. It showed us the the passion that's needed. It showed us the the, the principles at stake to build uh, sustainable, scalable, uh, decentralized systems. Yeah. And so, uh, you brought up IoT. I think I went on a slight tangent there, but let's talk about IoT for a second, okay? Because you know a lot of people think about the you know decentralized internet and that wouldn't that be cool? But it's got to be everyone's got to have a server. And, okay, great. That's a huge vision, and uh, we're pursuing it. What a lot of people don't think about is they've given up on IoT, right? They assume I get an Alexa or I get a security camera from Nest, which is now owned by Google, I think, and I plug this thing in and I've literally just granted a backdoor to my house, right? Yeah. Like I am now physically compromised. This isn't about Google's reading your emails or you can be censored by WhatsApp anymore. This is like they're in my home. They're controlling the locks on my doors. Now, are you a person of interest? Does it matter? Most people, most days, no. Right, but that's not the point. The point is that you're you're planting seeds of dystopia. You're planting seeds of total suffering. Okay, with this stuff, and it'll hit different people at different times as political regimes change and the winds change. And so, don't dig a hole if you don't want to fall in it eventually. Right. <laughs> so, um, the way that we do this is not by not uh, using IoT devices. It's by, instead of, so internet of things. So these are internet connected devices. What that means to a person today is that they're connecting to a third party server. But you can be internet connected to your own server. It's still the internet, if you use the word broadly enough, right? It's a network of connected devices across time and space. And you can have your own things within your own yes. siloed network. Yes, and that siloed network can communicate with other networks in an anonymous encrypted way, right? There are internet protocols such as Tor, but it's not the only one that exists, that facilitate server-to-server communication without breaking anonymity. You could even communicate over Lightning, right? Yeah. So it's not for lack of software. What's needed here is a hardware revolution backed by an operating system that can accommodate open source self-hosted software. The actual biggest missing ingredient was the operating system, right? The hardware exists, that's a Raspberry Pi. By the way, we're getting off the Raspberry Pi. MSCOS, um, is now a fork of Ubuntu. So it's 64-bit. We will be building it for x86, which means in due time, not too far, you're, you will be able to run an embassy on your old laptop, your old desktop, oh, hell a yeah. Rock Pro 64, a Raspberry Pi. Embassy OS will run on basically any computer that can accommodate the, the you know RAM and memory and storage needs of the services that run on Embassy OS. So, Sort of a side note, right? But that's what was missing. The hardware exists. 
There's plenty of things in this world that can serve as servers. Your client MacBook, your client Linux, your Windows machine can be servers. We don't use them as servers. We use them as clients to connect to servers. But they can also be a server if they have the proper operating system installed on them. So then you have the services. They exist. The world of open source self-hosted software is rich and growing by the year. It's incredible what is out there, right? There are Google G Suite alternatives, right? NextCloud, uh, password managers, all the things that you can get on our marketplace. They all exist. And oftentimes they're built by developers working for free or you know, on charitable donations because they're passionate about what they're building and they want everyone to use it, right? So these things exist and they're good and they're gonna get better once they start getting more funding which is, again, part of our mission is to make sure that the, the, the application layer of the decentralized internet is properly funded. Now, we can't do it all, but we can, we can encourage and contribute and you know, make sure that those avenues exist to obtain funding. What was missing was the middle piece. What connects the open source software services to the commodity hardware that is available down the street? We needed an operating system that could bridge the gap for non-technical individuals because nobody's gonna install Ubuntu, hit the command line, and install those services on their MacBook. They're just not gonna do it. We've proven that they're not gonna do it from 20 years of experience, more than that, 30, 40. They're not gonna do it. So we invented the missing piece. We're not the only ones thinking about this, gradually kind of moving in this direction, but we are the ones who have the architecture for it, the team capable of doing it, and the strategy to make it work, for sure. Thank you. I guess that's the first thing I'll say. Then, well, thank me in ten years when well, we succeed. <laughs> well, you can't see it right now, but Carr's um, Carr's putting comments from the YouTube live stream up on. Oh, is he? Uh, and it's just embassy users. My embassy service has been running flawlessly. I've seen at least four or five comments. Like, I fucking love embassy, and I think that's one thing. Let's turn us back to like a Bitcoin or context. Why would you use embassy? And I think just a combination of Bitcoin Core. And cups alone, just for like sending addresses to receive or send Bitcoin from somebody else is probably a number one use case if you want to preserve privacy um, in terms of like keeping your addresses safe or something like that. That's one simple use case that Bitcoiners should want to buy and use this service for. Yeah, um, password management is another big one. Um, Self-hosting your own password manager server is kind of a, you know, we'll call it a, a internet security 101, right? Like if you're not using a password manager to anyone listening, start using a password manager. Even if it is a hosted solution, it is still better than memorizing your passwords or using some sort of like simple algorithm where you determine different passwords for different websites. That shit is not secure. You're gonna get hacked eventually. It's a matter of time. Use a password manager. But if you really wanna go the the whole nine, use your own password manager running on your own server out of your own home over Tor. (laughs) And, oh, I can't do that. It's super hard. No, it's a button. You plug it into the wall, you push a button and it works, right? My wife uh, uses her own self-hosted password manager over Tor from the Firefox browser and it feels exactly like she's using some hosted solution over ClearNet. It has no difference. It takes 30 seconds to set up and you're done. So that's one. Uh, Data storage. So we offer a service called File Browser. Um, and it's, it's just Dropbox, right? It's just Dropbox, except all the data is being stored on a device in your home, accessed from you by anywhere in the world in total privacy. You can create shareable links for friends and family. You can even grant uh, Uncle Jim access. So a lot of the services that run on Embassy OS are Uncle Jimable, right? Like you can be your family's server and they can create accounts 
on these things and you can create permissions and permissioned access, right? So um, everything from BTC pay server to file browser, um, one of the biggest ones recently for us has been Matrix. So Matrix is the cups killer, mm -hmm. right? So we wrote cups just because uh, I think Aiden was bored one night and wrote a P2P messenger that works over Tor that installed on the embassy. But Matrix is incredible, right? Fully featured chat application. So do you have like an elements climate? Yeah. Client, so, uh, excuse me? No, so elements, you would use their desktop client, their web client, or their mobile client. Mm -hmm. And all of those clients at this sign-in screen allow you to use your own server. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you would... You use their clients, mm -hmm. um, but you we Element is also a web app. So there's nothing except time that has prevented us from actually putting Element onto the marketplace as well, such that you would be using your own Element website <laughs> to communicate to your own matrix server from your server. Um, but the clients are really good. Right? I use the Element client uh, for Android. Um, yeah, Laser Hoddle got me on the uh, the Element client. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very good. I haven't been using it as much, but that's like the one thing too. It's like, do you see Embassy OS making it easier for individuals like myself, who's like addicted to Telegram, addicted to Twitter DMs? Uh, you see it making it easier to transition and use these applications, these self-sovereign applications uh, more easily. Like, to, to, that, is the, that is the point. That yeah. is the essence of everything that we're trying to do is get you off of third-party services and onto the sovereign you know, world of independent computing uh, as seamlessly as possible and for as many people as possible. And, you know, it's not perfect, but it is, it is shockingly good. Like you will be surprised when you set that up at what it does. Everyone gives us that response because they think we're full of shit until they plug it in and start using it. And then they go, I did it. <laughs> I, I'm running my own self-hosted matrix server with friends and family talking to other people over their matrix server on a, and it's like, not only is it unstoppable, nobody even knows that it's happening. It's invisible. It's not like, it, oh, that we see them and we can't stop them. Nobody even knows you're doing this. It's completely on the dark net, all of it. <laughs> and it's, I don't think I can describe how liberating of a feeling it is. Like I've had it a few times in my life of downloading my own Bitcoin node and actually accessing addresses and producing addresses yeah. via my own node. Once you extend that beyond Bitcoin use cases to chat apps, file sharing, like how would you describe like the the way it doesn't feel like you're walking around naked anymore in front of uh, a world that's continuously just taking all of your data. There's two feelings that I will identify here because I've thought about this specifically before. Um, the first is a feeling that you have as a child uh, that most people can relate to as a kid of having some sort of like secret box with your precious things in it. Right, So it's probably under your bed mm -hmm. or in the closet and it's some trinket or a ring or whatever it is. And it's like, it's yours. And you sort of feel good that it's there and you try to hide it. And your parents know where it is, of course. But like you, it's this feeling of property, of it's mine. It's not permissioned in any way. I don't have to pay for it. It can't be taken from me. It's hidden, it's secure, it's mine. I think a lot of people feel this way about their Bitcoin when it's finally safe somewhere. 
right? When you really get happy with your setup, and I'm not sure anyone is fully happy <laughs> with their setup, but it's a never ending, you know, you, you keep trying. But every time it, you take that next step towards getting it safe, it's like, yeah, oh, it's just mine and it's there and it's precious, okay? Um, so that's one feeling. Um, and the second feeling here, oh crap, I blanked on it. Wouldn't have to come back to it. I got too into that one. I blanked on the second one. The feds are going to come get me. Let's uh, see. Uh, let me think about this. Is it? Well, I'll I'll riff on it a little bit and like. Yeah. It. I hate it when that happens. Can you discuss operational considerations, live liveliness, network disruptions, diversity, backups, etc.? This yep. is from O three Jan O nine in the Twitter co- or the YouTube comments. Yeah, that is the essence of sort of what we do differently is that we consider those things. We, we are, we're not naively building a product that looks good and feels good until things start to go wrong. And then it falls apart and you're on your own. That's not what we are doing. Um, and it's the primary differentiator from us and anyone else who's attempting something similar. Um, so what, were the, what was the list? One was liveness. Liveness, okay. uh, network disruptions, diversity, backups, et cetera. Yeah, so liveness and network disruptions sort of go hand in hand because a network disruption would would affect liveness of the device. So the point of a server, right? The, the single biggest difference between a server and a client is that the server is supposed to run all the time. It's a background process, okay? So that even when you're sleeping and your phone is off, someone can still send you a message because it's stored somewhere and then the client can sync later. So liveness, right? Network reliability is absolutely essential. Now, currently you have two ways of accessing your embassy at any given time. You can talk to it over Tor using its V3 URL from anywhere in the world using any browser that supports Tor. So either Tor browser or like Brave in a, in a Tor tab or Firefox, you can actually configure to resolve Onion URLs as well, since Tor browser is just a fork of Firefox. Um, and that's our recommended way, and it's what I do. So you, anywhere in the world, you can access your embassy over Tor. Now, every single service that you install on your embassy also gets a unique Tor URL. Some of them are used for visiting in the browser, like a web GUI. Others are for P2P and federated interfaces, right? So like Bitcoin RPC, Bitcoin P2P, those are not GUIs that you visit in the browser. They're just things that, you know, the service is using to communicate with other servers of its kind. Um, And those all get unique, newly created, never before seen Tor URLs. The problem with this is that Tor itself is not the most reliable network. Um, and it can go down, right? Like there, it can be disrupted, it can be attacked, not mm-hmm. free of cost, so it doesn't happen all the time. But there have been times when the Tor network has been disrupted and it can disrupt your experience. It can, it can cause you to not be able to reach your embassy uh, interfaces and it can cause, say, your Bitcoin Core node to not be able to communicate with its peers. Um, This is an inherent problem with Tor, and the way that we build around this into the future is by uh, implementing alternative internet protocols. So rather than just relying on Tor, when you install services, they will also receive like an I2P uh, address where, you know, it's reaching the same service, right, the same API, but over a different network interface. And we can just proliferate these network interfaces over time, uh, including to ClearNet, right, what we call Mm clearnet.com. Um, that's coming next year. So we already have plans in the works now for making it such that you can run your embassy and every service that you install on the embassy on your own domain name. Obviously, that 
involves the legacy internet a little bit more because now you're involving the DNS servers to resolve those names to the IP. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not like you're giving away the information, right? It's still, it's like a small chip in the, in the armor to accomplish a huge gain in usability to actually be able to use the clear net to talk to the server in your home. Um, and so that's coming next year and will be a huge deal for a lot of people who want privacy and independence, but are willing to, but are not like on the edge of paranoid. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's going to be great for a lot of people. They're um, able to, to come a little closer to the middle of the spectrum. It's not even to the middle. It's like yeah. one step away from perfect, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, which Tor, I wouldn't call it perfect, but it gets dang close. The problem is reliability. So yeah. to answer your question today, uh, most days, most cases, I've been running this for almost two years now, uh, it works great. Tor does work fine. Um, and we're about to make it a lot better because, um, spoiler, and we are now publishing our, our roadmap incrementally. So what's coming in 031 is already published uh, on our project board on GitHub so people can see it. And what's coming in 031 is the ability to turn your embassy, uh, not turn it into, but to enable it to be a Tor relay node. So uh. we are about to flood the Tor network with more relay nodes, which will dramatically improve the viability of Tor itself. And you won't have to do this. It'll be a toggle. And in order to do it, you're going to have to set up like port forwarding on your router. So it's like for those who want to give back and contribute to the Tor network and experience the benefits of it, because if you are a Tor relay, the Tor network will prioritize your traffic. I didn't realize so, that. Yeah, it'll actually be faster for you if you do this. But it's not grandma, right? You're going to have to like go into your router and change a setting. It's not rocket science either. And you'll be a Tor relay node. Yes. Yeah. You'll not be necessarily an exit node either, right? No, yeah. no. Yeah. Don't. Don't use exit nodes. Don't use Tor if you're visiting a ClearNet website. It's not worth it. It's worse than using Chrome because it's a net, right? I can't say that every piece of traffic that goes through a, a Tor exit node is monitored, and but you should assume that it is. I think I think we can safely assume that you it can, is. Yeah. I don't use Tor unless I'm visiting a Tor website, and it's fine. Well, I think this is important for people to understand, right? Because I think people yeah. just assume that you use Tor... You can go access ClearNet sites and it gives you more privacy, but that's to go through that exit node. Yeah, I think it's worse yeah. because, because it's a net, right? The, I forget the name of the firm, but again, these little things stick with me over the years. It was an Israeli cybersecurity firm. I think it was in, uh, I want to say Zero to One, Peter Thiel's book. I don't remember which book it was in. But the thesis of this company was bad guys hide, good guys don't. <laughs> this is the underpinning of their entire business model. And using that essential thesis, they were able to, you know, more effectively catch the quote bad guys by never looking in the clear places for them. They're like, if you're doing something bad or illegal, you are not doing it on a dot-com website using your Facebook profile. So they didn't even look there. Like literally that's the safest place to go do something because nobody no is looking. looking there. They're only looking at the people who are trying to hide. So if you're going to, and, and again, trying to hide does not mean you're doing something bad, right? It just means you want privacy. More and more these days, it's not like we're, we're not catering to criminals. We're catering to people who have dignity and don't like being watched with everything that they oh, do. That's an important point to, <laughs> to drill home. Is like, and I, obviously, We've discussed this in the past. Matt and I talk about it all the time. Matt O'Dell and I talk about it all the time on Rabbit Hole Recap. Like privacy has just been, it's been given this negative connotation, which is so insane. So insane in our day and age. Like, 
if you got nothing to hide, then you shouldn't be worried. Like that is the status quo mainstream thought when it comes to privacy, which is- Pri Privacy is an insurance policy. Insurance policy against what? Against the future, against change of regime, change of policies, right? If what you're doing today, I got nothing to hide, I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, what if what you're doing today is wrong in 20 years because the wrong group gets into power? It's an insurance policy against the future, not the present. Yeah. Right? Maybe you don't need privacy today, but what are you going to need tomorrow? Do you know? No. So you better take precaution today. Why put stuff out there? Now, if you're posting on social media, it's not supposed to be private. I do find it funny. A lot of people always talk about privacy and then mention like Facebook in certain ways. Now, Facebook's looking at DMs and all that stuff too. So, but this idea of like, I'm posting publicly <laughs> and it's like, it's not private. I'm like, what? It's yeah. not, you're posting publicly. Yeah, this is a, uh, so, this is a social media yeah, public forum. Right, but that doesn't mean that the clicks that you do, right? Like what is private and what is public needs to be very clear. It's important that when you are using a social media website, if the profiles you're looking at are being tracked, that I would consider an invasion of privacy because I have not, said, I want someone to look at this. Yeah. It's only when I make a public post that I'm saying, I want someone to look at this. But of course they're tracking everything. And that's where the privacy with concerns with things like Facebook come up is because they're doing things, they're tracking things that they're not, that is not apparent. Well, and, and it's scary too. Well, this is not social media, but like Google just became, the world just became aware that they've been handing over search uh, history to the FBI. Uh, they they have shocked. I mean, shouldn't be shocked, but <laughs> no. like, I shouldn't be shocked. But it's like, the FBI is giving Google code or a list of searches that anytime somebody searches a certain phrase, send us their IP, send us their information. It's fucked. Yeah. You know what else too? Um, I also want to come back to that comment that you brought up because I think he was asking about redundancy too, which is another huge aspect of being a systems administrator. Um, but let me, let me address something else real quick. It's not just privacy, right? It's very easy for us as a company to, you know, like we're trying to bootstrap a movement here, right? We're doing it through the, the vehicle of a company and we have a group of people and we need to like build products and deliver technology and whatever. So um, part of that strategy is to convince people why they need this thing, right? And we're not gonna sit there and just scare tactic the hell out of people into using, using it. The world's doing that for us. We don't really need to reiterate <laughs> that as much. But something we bring up that not a lot of people think about is that the, the objective of the tech giants over the last 40 years, right? Yeah, about 40 years, has been to control the pipes, right? It's been to get as much control, to, to be the middlemen, to make sure that every last thing that you do flows through them, right? And they gave it away for free to accomplish that goal. It's a free app, it's this, it's this, it's this. Why? It's because they're trying to control the middle, right? They're trying to be the ultimate middlemen. What happens when you actually achieve that goal and you are the middlemen that everyone depends on for everything that you need? It's no longer free. They're just gonna squeeze and squeeze and there's nothing you can do about it. If your life depends on your ability to use to make phone calls, send text messages, do email, social media, all of it, which it does. Most of our lives depend on the ability to use the cloud, the ability to use the internet in this custodial manner. Well, when you have a dependent, a, de a dependency in your life, expect whoever controls access to that dependency to extort you 
at some point. And what they've been doing so far is taking the data and monetizing the data, right? And that was enough, right? To justify these massive valuations and huge companies and get rich. And But guess what? People are starting to be more and more concerned about their privacy. Yeah. All the way to even pressuring lawmakers into creating laws that prohibit tech giants from collecting data without asking you. And when they ask you, you say no. So what's happening here, our thesis, is that the the ability to monetize big data like at scale and in the way that they've been doing it is, a, is going to start getting hurt. They're not going to be able to make as much money off of taking your data. So what are they going to do? They're going to take your money. Fuck the data. They'll just start charging. Yeah. Expect to get nickeled and dimed on every app that's on your phone to the point of it being a massive monthly expense. You already see it with like streaming services. People who have Hulu and Netflix and this and this, they're, they're all 10 bucks a piece, but it adds up when you have yeah. eight, right? Well, if every app on your phone, and there's probably 40, right? If you're an average person, you have 40 to 50 apps on your phone. If every one of them was charging you $10 a month, that's going to be a serious impact. So we're going to start to see that. I think we're going to start to see, I mean, the Apple updates that sort of force the issue, right? That say, hey, if you don't want to, these apps to collect your data, like hit this button. Yeah. I think anybody, I, mean, I believe they had to present a notification in one of their latest updates to present that data. And I, I would say most people said, nope, don't track me. Absolutely. Which yeah. means the, the, a whole revenue stream is drying up and they're going to have to supplement it from somewhere. They're going to lash out with uh, subscriptions. Subscriptions. So They're going to lash out with subscription models. Mm-hmm. You're going you're gonna to pay for everything. Pay as you go everything. Um, and unless, unless you're running your own open source self-hosted software services that you access from anywhere in the world in total privacy. <laughs> then it's free for life. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. It's not free because somebody said it's free and is collecting your data. It's free because it's inherently free. Yeah. And it seems like we're hitting an inflection point in terms of open source services that make this vision of a future built on free and open source software very tangible. I mean, obviously we have Bitcoin, uh, you mentioned Cups, which you guys created, and Elements, you have Mastodon up there. Um, You've got the distributed Google Suite. You've got Jitsi. Now you're getting into video and Jitsi's audio. Jitsi's not up there yet, but that is something we're going. Yeah, after for but sure. it's like an open source technology, yeah. like the, the suite that enables the the data transfer in different mediums, whether it be text, audio, visual, are are coming to market. And yep. it's just a matter of do we have an inflection point of talent focused on uh, those open source suites? Uh, that that allows us to build this out quickly, and maybe there's no better forcing function than Apple giving everybody that notification that says "Don't track me" and things oh, are things com- are just going to get expensive. And we're like, all right, let's build the free version. It's coming from everywhere. The pressure is coming from all directions, right? The the incumbent systems are violating privacy. They're you know they're they're going to start extorting on the subscription front. Um, the free and open source developers have always been developing out of passion. Um, but now that passion is increasing because the world is attacking, right? So it's, you're only going to see a more and more, a stronger desire to contribute to this, to this alternative future as the centralized world continues to express its inadequacies. And, um, and secondly, funding helps. So Bitcoin has actually done a lot, I think, for open source development because a lot of people are just putting their middle fingers up at their jobs now. They're just like, you know what? I, this might not last forever and whatever, but I don't need to work right now. 
Um, I'm going to go build a passion project. I'm going to go work on something I care about rather than just paying the bills because Bitcoin has afforded me this, this opportunity. Um, and then, um, and then lastly, the uh, usability of the services is huge. So nobody wants to see all their hard work on their passion project sit and collect dust in the garage, right? Like nobody wants to build some open source note-taking app and then just have nobody in the world use it except techies who know how to follow a readme on, on GitHub. Mm -hmm. So something like Embassy actually dramatically increases the, the distribution channels of these software services, right? Because we we take File Browser, for instance, or, or we have one called PhotoView, right? So PhotoView is like Google Photos. It allows you to index photos uh, into albums. It has facial recognition so that it can automatically put, you know, people where they belong. Um, it has multi-user accounts. It has shareable links. It's just a cool photo application. You can do editing and all that stuff in it, right? Um, we didn't build PhotoView. We didn't build any things that were on Embassy. We contacted the developer of PhotoView and we said, hey, we built this distribution mechanism such that anyone on earth will be able to run your photo software, um, but it needs to be packaged up for our operating system. It needs to be wrapped with all this metadata stuff. And like two days later, he was just like, here it is. <laughs> because he wants people to use his stuff, right? And so what this does is it actually opens up this huge sort of like I'll call it joint marketing opportunity between us and the, the the software developers, the service developers, because nobody wants to see their stuff rotten in the in a garage. They want to see it used, and we are giving them that ability. We are the outlet of open source software. Increased distribution leads to increased fulfillment, leads to higher potential More production. for yeah. production. Right? Yeah, it's a beautiful feedback loop. Yeah, uh, and maybe. This was the missing piece, this operating system the operating like you can describe. Yes. The operating system and the the sort of surrounding support system for the operating system. Because if we just put that out in the world and we're just like, see ya, then then people would be a lot, you know, more timid to try to learn it and figure it out. Like people who run embassies and who are in our chat groups and who are part of the community really have found a place. Right? We are there. The team is in the chat groups. We're growing all the time. Um, you're actually getting the help you need because while the while the product just works, you still have questions, concerns. Like, what if I do this? Am I in trouble? What if I do that? We're here to help, right? We're constantly making more and more YouTube videos. We're making more and more documentation. We're scaling the support network um, because that that is necessary. It has to be packaged in a nice box, right? As much as I hate that kind of, it's like I acknowledge the truth of that situation. Like, you cannot introduce a radical new technology if it's not packaged in a beautiful box. You're just cutting off a portion of the population that will not trust anything unless it's packaged nicely. Right. It's so interesting how humans are. So we package are. it nicely. It's great. No big deal. It's beautiful. <laughs> I can't wait to plug. We're going to plug this in after we record here inside and get loaded up. I guess that's uh, a good segue. And like, I mean, I know we described it in the, the first episode we recorded, but what happens? I plug this in. Mm -hmm. How do we get onboarded? How long does it take? I believe it was 15 minutes the last time you were here. Uh, it's probably five minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you'll, you'll plug that in. Um, it will immediately serve itself up on your local area network. So you plug it into both power and router. It'll serve itself up on your local area network as embassy.local. So you'll open up your computer and type in embassy.local. And that will present what we call the setup wizard. It's like a three-step, you know, set up your embassy process. 
uh, the result of which, so it's a, you know, it's not like give us your private information. Not, there's no us. <laughs> the setup is happening between your computer and your embassy, period. You can turn off your internet, okay? And so um, at the end of that setup process is going to be a Tor v3 URL and a unique .local URL. So no longer embassy.local. That only exists. Embassy.local only exists for the tiny window of time during setup. Once it's set up, now that thing will serve itself on your LAN at, its, at a unique address, and it'll serve itself on Tor at a unique address. So when you're home, you use the LAN address because it's lightning fast. You're cutting Tor out of the equation altogether. Mm-hmm. And when you're on the go, you use Tor because it's accessible from anywhere in the world without compromise. Um, so that's it. The result of the setup, it's less than five minutes, creates two websites, or one website that's accessible over two network interfaces, um, and then you go in and shop. You hit the marketplace and shop for things that you want to install, click install, off and running. It's, it, feels, it feels like using uh, an iPhone, right? Like we, we are not so proud to acknowledge the hard work, brilliant work, that has been done by the tech giants over the last 40 years. Like they really nailed it, okay? Like the fact that grandma can use email is remarkable, okay? They took this super technical thing and they boiled it down to something that a child can understand. And we are riding on that. We consider Apple and Google our R&D department, right? Like they they are pumping billions of dollars, millions and billions of dollars over the decades into UX and UI design research, doing these focus groups, A-B testing, right? They've shown us exactly what works. So we designed Embassy OS, we just copied them. We took exactly what their interfaces look like, <laughs> you know, and we just made it for ourselves. And, um, and except instead of uh, using a personal computer, those interfaces are designed to use a personal server. Yeah. Uh, real quick, I want to visit the redundancy thing. I don't want to forget about that guy's question. Redundancy. Yes. So, you know, what hap- where, where's your data, right? The data is living on that hard drive right there, right? That's a two terabyte SSD, and that's where all Embassy OS data lives, uh, both the operating system data and the data for all the services. And so if your house burns down, bye-bye data, okay? It's gone. Um, and that's not okay. It's not okay because this is important stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It could even have private keys on it. It could have passwords on it. So backups are essential. And so the way that you do backups uh, using using Embassy OS 030, so we actually improved the backup story from the O2X series, uh, is you have two options. And the one that we recommend is is backups uh, over the local area network to another device. So either your MacBook, your Windows machine, your Linux machine, could be a desktop, laptop, could be even just a network attached storage device, a NAS that you just have in your home for storing data. And you go in and you do a shared folder. So you would actually like go into your, your MacBook, you'd right click the folder and you'd be like share, All right? And now that folder is now an accessible network interface on the LAN. Mm-hmm. You plug in the address and the password into Embassy and click backup and it'll back it up to this device in your home. Uh, and if you wanted to, you could actually take an external hard drive, like an HDD, plug it into your MacBook, select that as the shared folder, and then it would create a backup to the HDD. You unplug that and go put it in a safe somewhere. Okay, so it's very manual. You actually have to, like, create a backup. You have to push the button to create a backup. Um, you could also just plug a drive directly in to the embassy, but there's a caveat. The Raspberry Pi 4 
doesn't provide sufficient power to power two SSDs or an HDD and an SSD. So you can't plug in two drives into that embassy. It just won't. So you want to be able to back it up, essentially. You have to get like a powered hub. You have to get like an alternative source of power, and then you can plug in multiple drives. And then you could just do that. You plug in a HDD, click backup, and it'll back it up to that drive. So you have two options for backing up. Both are manual. Um, However, your embassy is not down during the process. You click backup, and you can go continue to do things. And it just cycles through and backs up every single piece of uh, service on, on your embassy. So you can go do something else. You can continue to use it, whatever. So... As we move forward, the backup story will improve dramatically. Uh, And part of this, sort of the holy grail of the server infrastructure that we're going for here, is actual multiple synced embassies around the world. So you, for instance, would have like an embassy here, and you'd have one at your parents' place somewhere, and you'd have one on the other side of the world at a friend's house, and they would all be aware of each other because you would give each one the address of the other and the credentials, and they would actually act as a personal server cluster. Uh, creating backups to each other on a continuous basis. Hell yeah. Yeah, so that's that's where it gets really convenient. You don't even have to think about it anymore because if one goes down, the other one picks up the slack and the data's in three different places. And say like you don't have three geographic regions and you don't want to buy three embassies. You don't need to because somebody else could be running an embassy and they have a four terabyte SSD and they're barely using any of it. They can actually store encrypted backups of other embassy users and do it for sats, right? So this is a data storage protocol that would leverage uh, micropayments to enable people to monetize excess storage space, right? This has been talked about a lot. So what Chia wants to be. It's been talked about a lot. (laughs) Um, It's actually a really hard problem to solve because you need to be able to verify that the person is in fact doing their job. So you have to utilize some pretty advanced cryptography to... Uh, basically ask all the people who are supposed to be storing whatever portion of your data they're storing that they actually have that exact portion that you sent them and that they're supposed to have. So it's this constant proof of, um, you know, proof that they're doing their job in exchange for sats. And you need to have enough redundancy so that if someone becomes malicious, your data doesn't go missing. It's a very hard problem that we personally are not just going to solve in total, but Embassy acts as a perfect platform for something like that and perfect use case, right? It's the need is there. Um, and so we will either be building, contributing to building or funding the building, partially at least of that protocol. It's it's like part of our mission. Hell yeah, yeah. I love that. And even if you, so if you're storing a backup and in other embassy users, uh, SSD with extra space, it's encrypted, right? So that even if it's on their server, they can't read the data or access the data and they need your key to unlock that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they don't even know who you are. No. It's a completely anonymous data sharing network. This is... Again, theory. That's not built. No. Right? Today, the backup story is this, back it up on your land. The next incremental step that we take for backups is to schedule automatic backups. However... If you're doing an automatic backup to your laptop and it's scheduled for 3 p.m. every day, but you are gone with your laptop and it's not connected to the LAN, it's going to fail. Now, that doesn't mean the embassy explodes. It just means that you'll receive a notification that says backup attempt failed, could not reach, you know, target target backup uh, device. Um, but who says it needs to be on your LAN? So the next step after automated backups to something on the LAN would be automated backups to a remote server of your choosing, including another person's embassy. 
This wouldn't be for sats. It wouldn't be a paid for thing. It would be like a buddy system. Like I have an embassy and you have an embassy. Yeah, of course, man. Here's my address and your unique credentials for my address, which only gives you the ability to do one thing with my device, which is install a cryptid backup once a day at this time, whatever. And then I do it for you. And that way, if either of us goes down, you have my data and I have yours. Yeah, and this doesn't seem like too much of a leap of a user experience. People are automatically backing their iPhones up to the Apple Cloud all the time. Yeah. Right. No, the, the big thing to keep in mind here is that everything I'm talking about can be, it can, it can come across as like a lot uh, and it can feel technical and challenging. And it's only once you get into the user interface that you're like, huh, this thing hard. really makes sense. There's a big button that says create backup and then it tells you exactly what to do. And then you click backup and then it works. And it all of it is transparent and smooth and fast, and it just works. It's a very pleasurable experience. Hell yeah. So let's paint the picture of a world in which Embassy OS succeeds uh, to a degree that would make us extremely happy. What, what, is, what is an individual, a group of individuals, a city, a state's uh, day-to-day life look like? What is, what is our interaction with the digital world? How does it change? Is the change even noticeable? Ideally, at full scale, it would feel like today, but without all the pitfalls and dangers and breaches of privacy and possibilities for extortion. Like, there's nothing wrong with the computing experience today. Can it get better? Of course. And it will get better, either in a centralized way or a decentralized way. But the computing experience will improve and it will expand to include IoT. Right? Your home is going to be extremely intelligent. Everything is going to be connected to the internet. Things that you didn't think even should be connected to the internet will be because everything is it's just going to be a virtual reality where everything has a chip in it. It's all, your digital home exists, you know? Um, and that is going to happen. There's nothing that's going to stop the smart home IoT robot future from happening. So our goal is to make sure that those robots are serving individuals, not being rented by individuals to serve the needs of uh, corporate and governmental entities. Like that's our goal is to give individuals direct sovereign control over the robots that will, and, and systems that will govern their physical lives, um, physical and digital lives. And so we're at the very early stages of this. Um, but if I were to imagine the future project and, and you know, you are using a um, mobile device that is connecting to one or more of your private servers over one or more various network interfaces, right? Internet overlay networks that are private, onion routed, end-to-end encrypted, talking to your own personal servers, which are then networked over P2P or federated networks. Uh, Something like Matrix is federated, something like Bitcoin is P2P, right? Uh, That are talking to other servers, again, over encrypted overlay networks, probably bypassing ISPs because it's actually doing mesh routing hops around other people's servers all around the world. Um, And I can control the devices in my home. Even when I'm not home, I can open up my phone and, you know, watch video footage from my home or tell my, you know, chef robot to begin cooking dinner or something like that. Um, And it's that feeling of as a child having that box and that feeling of as an adult being competent and in control and not at the mercy of others to take care of your needs. And it'll all be technology, right? This is not the woods future. 
I imagine a future of where technology is is our savior, not our destroyer. Well, I'm happy you bring, brought up the woods analogy. And I think this is like the perfect happy medium. And this is something, again, uh, the whole metaverse meme blowing up triggered me pretty uh, pretty aggressively because it seems like this weird form of nihilistic escapism where people just want to ignore uh, the problems in our world and escape into this digital VR world where, where they can make a perfect world uh, that the, the natural world isn't providing them. That's one extreme. The other extreme is the one where, where the mountain men who just go back to, to using wood would burn fires to heat our homes and, and use no technology. And what you're describing seems like the, the most optimistic future that we can have where you, you combine the two, you hypercharge the physical world beat space with the technology that we've been given. You don't have to uh, escape into a full on digital world. You can, you can blend meat space and the digital world to uh, give you the best quality of life that you could have in meat space. Absolutely. Yeah. There, you know, when I talk about the robot future and smart homes and everyone will do whatever they want to do, you'll just be able to do it easier, right? Like if you want to go live in the woods, you can live in the woods, but wouldn't you like to live in the woods with like a drone that's patrolling the perimeter and, you know, a, a grill that cooks the best food you've ever had by thinking it at the grill, you know, without Google being involved. It's like implement technology to whatever extent you want to. The point is that the technology that you implement should be yours in like the grittiest sense of property, right? It should not be permissioned, should not be rentals. It's like when you buy a hammer, it's yours, right? You go to, you go to the hardware store, you buy a hammer, you go home, and that hammer just belongs to you. It's not like that with our technology. A hammer is technology. I'm talking about digital technology, yeah. right? Like that's well, not yours. Well, it's not not only yours, <laughs> but you don't build the framework by which it's it's used too, right? Like you're given these cookie cutter digital houses, or here's how you use this technology. Yeah. Like if you're just given the facilities to build your own framework, I, I think that's much preferable, right? Like you can it's build customizable. Yeah. Sure. Where these out-of-the-box frameworks handed to us by the tech giants, governments, intelligence apparatus, uh, is that framework's constructed in a way to force you to operate and act in a certain way, which is not sovereignty. It's not freedom. It's not living life right. to the best of your abilities. Yeah, because defaults matter, right? Like the, the, the pathways matter just as much as the the technology itself, right? How you use it matters as much as what it is. And so, for instance, if you buy uh, a MacBook, assuming there is no hardware level of vulnerability, like assuming Apple is not literally on the motherboard in your home, right? Like there's not some backdoor building, which there might be, but let's assume for a second that the hardware itself is safe, okay? Maybe that's a bad assumption, but let's, let's do it. It means that you could use that computer in a very personal, private way. It's possible, but that computer comes pre-installed with a bunch of software that has default settings, and those default settings are to share things, right? So it's like defaults matter. It's not just about the technology, it's about how you instruct people to use it. So that's why we talk about what we're doing is not just a product thing. 
It's an educational thing too. It's a user experience thing. We have to give people technology that is not very opinionated, right? But if it's not opinionated at all, then you don't know what to do. It's just a blank page, right? It's writer's blog. I don't even know what to write about. I need a prompt. Give me some guidance. And so finding that delicate balance between nothing and we're going to tell you exactly how you're going to use this thing is really important. And we always err on the side of blank slate, knowing that it produces a less than perfect experience, but, you know, makes it such that we don't start falling into the trap of using default against users, right? Like it's really important to us that we build this system, not according to the don't be evil philosophy, but according to the can't be evil philosophy. And that's all about design decisions. It's not about how you treat the product and technology after it's built. It's about how you built it. And so as we make these decisions uh, in our daily meetings and we figure out how we're going to design things, the question that always comes up is how could we take advantage of this in the future to fuck <laughs> people for money? And um, we take every measure possible to not build it that way. Yeah, that's extremely important, admirable. And I guess my next question with that in mind is how do you see users new users, raw users, uh, getting up to speed with these particular design frameworks and, and leveraging them. I like guess another like a popular trope in the Bitcoin space is or a, a knock against Bitcoin's private public key management will never be a thing. Similarly with this sovereign tech stack, like, oh, it's too hard. Like uh, you can't give people a blank slate. Like that was like Steve Jobs' thing. Like people don't know what they want. You have to put it in front of them. Um, And it seems like you're trying to balance those two things. It is hard. Um, In terms of the will people do it, will people take on at least a minimal degree of responsibility in this world to obtain values such as privacy and independence? Uh, We know they will take on some degree of discomfort or responsibility. The question is how much, right? What is the, what is the, the line? And here's what we have come up with. We think that the open source, self-hosted, decentralized computing paradigm that we imagine for humanity's future will require one thing that the current system does not. One thing and one thing only. And we're still looking for ways to get around that too. But currently, all we've been able to come up with is you cannot forget your password. <laughs> you can't lose your password, your passphrase, your mnemonic, whatever it is. There's, you're responsible for one fucking thing. Just don't forget it, bury it somewhere, do whatever you got to do. Beyond that, we can actually replicate the current system. We can make it look, feel, and act just like the current convenient, beautiful, centralized system. In, in terms of experience. We can replicate that experience, but without all the bullshit. Eventually. Yeah. That's the other thing too. Like, uh, I mean, it, it's a little and a lot to ask at the same point. Uh, the, oh my God, if I lose my password, I'm fucked. is a big feeling out there, but yep. there's a degree of personal responsibility that needs to be reintroduced to the world. At least I'm under the, uh, the strong belief that, that humanity needs to begin taking more extreme ownership. Individuals, 
that make up humanity need to exert more extreme ownership over their lives. How do we make that cool? That's like one thing I try to figure out how to do with the messaging and this new in the newsletter and this podcast and everything that we do at TFTC is like, how do we message that self-sovereignty is cool, that you should want to hold your private keys, that you should want to run your own node, that you should want a self-sovereign stack to uh, interact with when you're sharing data um, about yourself, personal data? It's, it's a hard sell um, because convenience is really valuable. People value convenience almost above everything. And that's partly out of naivety. They don't realize how bad things can get. Um, but something I've been hitting on more and more, and again, I mentioned this earlier, is that we don't talk about sovereignty as much. And we don't talk about privacy as much anymore, just internally even. What we talk about more these days is independence, mm-hmm. right? First of all, it's a term that doesn't trigger as much emotion, right? You say the word sovereignty and it just comes with a lot of baggage. It's accurate, but, but depending on who you're talking to, they can just be like, well, that's not for me. <laughs> I'm like, you don't, okay. But I get it. You know, there's, there's political and connotations. Um, and then privacy is not strong enough. It's like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't, you know, or it doesn't sound as valuable. It's just, it's, it's, you can sell privacy, uh, but it doesn't sell as well. As, as we think independence does. And the reason for that is because nobody wants to think of themselves as a dependent, right? right? Children are dependents, right? Even when you fill out your taxes, how many dependents do you have? Are you a dependent or are you an adult, right? Are you a child or are you an adult? So you can almost use this as like a, like if you don't take care of your own keys, if you don't memorize your own password, you're a digital child, right? Mommy and daddy are gonna store your password for you and they're gonna either let you have it or not. And like, who wants to be a child? Are you a child? Right. So you can almost kind of like, you know, politely, politely ridicule somebody for just wanting to be a child. Grow up. Bully people into the self, (laughs) into the sovereign stack. Grow up. Take control of your stuff. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. You see this, uh, another big theme in the last two years, obviously, with the economic lockdowns, people... Uh, turning away from public schools toward homeschooling, homeschooling pods, and different ways of educating children. Like, it, I want to live in a world where kids as young as what eight year olds, as soon as you're able to use a computer, you're learning how to build a sovereign stack at that age. Right? Like, that's what we need to get to, mm-hmm. in my mind. Like, I got my son in there right now. He's almost two. Like, I hope by the time he's ten, he's plugging in computers. Uh, downloading MSCOS and building his own stack that I don't know about, um, and with with little uh, instruction from myself or yeah. or navigation help from me. Do we get there? Oh yeah, yeah. No, this this makes that a lot easier, right? So asking an eight year old to, you know, root their their MacBook and you know start downloading Docker containers and running them and you know setting up a tor network interface and accessing it from a you know configured firefox browser it's it's too much but when you talk about building a sovereign stack i know you're not just talking about you know running self-hosted software you're talking about the the stack of life right like taking control of your food and you know and your physical protection and your security systems and your digital privacy and all of it it's the the building a, a sovereign an individual uh, and we want that for our children. I do. I just had my first child. Congratulations. Thank you. And and uh, I think about her a lot as we're building this stuff. What 
kind of future do I want to create for her? And what kind of person do I want her to be? And um, that informs a lot of our technology. This thought of just wanting my daughter to be a completely free person. Free. Freedom. Right? We're talking about really, really fundamental basic stuff here. <laughs> yeah. um, and and we can use technology to do that. We can use technology to lower the barrier to entry, right? That's really what we're doing, right? It, 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 conceptually, someone were just like, what does Start9 do without telling me what Start9 does, right? With any details of the business at all. I would say we're lowering the barrier to entry and shortening the darkness, <laughs> right? Like making sovereign digital technology accessible to people in order to provide an off-ramp from the collapsing system to minimize the damage and darkness that will result from its demise. That's what we're out to do. Yeah. That's a heavy mission. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun though too. I mean, I shouldn't well, say fun. It's, it's invigorating. Like yes. We, you wake up excited to go to work every day. I would imagine. I do. Yeah. I don't come home is the problem. <laughs> I work from home a lot, but like, yeah, I, uh, I, I work too much. I do as well. My, my, you can go ask my wife. She'll tell you the same thing. But again, it's worth it, number one. Uh, and number two, I think we were talking earlier, like I'm having a black pill day, a bad pill day. But it's true. And I think I really like the way you frame it by we're shortening the darkness. I think my problem and like what makes, gives me a sense of existential dread is I always thought that we could avoid the darkness, right? Like can, if we could front run, if we can get Bitcoin in as many hands as possible, if we can make as many people aware of how fucked up the world is as quickly as possible. We can avoid it. We can, we can fix society's problems from, from falling into a dark place. But uh, I think uh, we are at a point where we do have to resign ourselves. Uh, you just have to let the process of decay and entropy of, of these incumbent systems play their course. And that will come with a bit of darkness. And I really like the framing of shortening that, accepting, number one, that it is coming and it is upon us. Um, and with that acceptance... Uh, working to shorten it to to as short a period as possible, um, which I, I, th I think is a really good framing as opposed to making the binary, we we fix it and prevent it or we over. just go into complete shit. Yep. Yeah, and maybe you are right. Maybe we can avoid it. I personally don't... I think we're already in it. Yeah, well, it depends on how you define darkness. How <laughs> dark is dark? It need to be before you call it dark. I don't know. Um but this is not, it's not beautiful out right now, right? It's, it's cloudy at best and storming at worst already. Um, but, but it's a race. This is, this is where the passion comes from. It's why I'm so passionate about what we're doing is because I, I see a ticking clock, right? And again, it's not an overnight thing. It's not like one day it's fine and the next day it's not. As we've seen, it's deteriorating in real time. But we have to build alternative parallel systems as soon as possible so that those who want to exit can exit. We have to build the off-ramps, right? Because you're in a crowded theater that's burning down. Get people out as fast as possible, right? And that's through technology and education. That's how you do that. Yeah. And, and direct assistance, actually helping out, right? Being welcoming to people who want, even if they don't understand exactly what's going on, right? Sometimes that's through willful ignorance and sometimes it's just through ignorance. Sometimes it's naivety. Sometimes they don't understand how evil some people are. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. The banality of evil. I mean, you can 
make a very strong argument that uh, it's just dull. A, a majority of people today are engaged in a, in a somewhat banal form of evil, and they don't even realize it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think in my mind, my personal experiences, I think I pivoted from avoid the darkness to shorten the darkness um, in 2012. Why 2012? Ron Paul. Okay. What uh? What did Ron? What did Uncle Ron say? It's, well, it's what he. It's what he didn't he accomplish. Didn't, he didn't right? win the. Uh, I, yeah. I at that time had never felt more connected to a real movement in my life, and I was young. It's not like I had a ton of years to have ever been connected to anything, but I was like, this is real, right? I was at those rallies. I like the Ron Paul 2012 revolution was real. Like it was it was an intellectual movement. It was backed by, by logic. It was backed by fact. It wasn't just a bunch of empty rhetoric. He had a plan that would have worked over many, many, many decades. He was, was crushing the debates too. He was crushing the debates. He was rallying thousands, tens of thousands of people who were chanting, end the Fed. I mean, it was like a real <laughs> movement and I was all over it. And I was like, he, you can't stop something like this. I was like, this thing has, has wheels and momentum and there's no way he doesn't get the nomination. And then I watched how they dealt with him. And I think that's proper wording because he was dealt with. Like yeah. A child is dealt with, okay? Like I, it was the most powerful social movement I had ever seen was basically flicked off the table through a very simple tactic of uh, obscurity. They basically just pretended like he didn't exist. Yeah. In the media. And then he didn't exist. They had the polls where like he would be like first and they put him like in third position uh-huh. and, oh, like, no, on so the screen. They so just people skipped like the name. Yeah. In first you have Mitt Romney and in third you have Michelle Bachman. <laughs> like who's in second? <laughs> like you just didn't say his name. And I was like, there's no way that can work. People are not idiots. And then it just worked. It worked beautifully. They just ignored his existence and he failed to exist. And at that moment I realized how powerful the incumbent system was. How much power media has over perception. Like I had read about propaganda. I had read about sort of the way that the state, you know, um, manages consciousness, but I had never experienced it so intimately. And now we're seeing it again in many different facets, but in one in particular, but, but it's like, so I, I switched from, well, you can't, you can't beat politics with politics. You cannot beat that system at its own game. It's really good at it. You need something wholly other. And at the time I had not discovered Bitcoin, right? This was 2012. I was using excess money from my paychecks to buy gold because mm-hmm. <laughs> Ron Paul, was, you know, <laughs> I learned about sound money and I didn't know anything about Bitcoin at the time. And so I was out there buying gold and silver, you know, trying to, I had this thesis that the monetary system, I had all the, the you know, the, the understanding Fundamentals. of it. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't a dev at the time. I was a late in life programmer. I hit it hard when I did and now I'm, quite good and been doing it for seven years. But at the time I wasn't, I didn't know how to code and I hadn't discovered Bitcoin. I was pretty depressed. Like there was a couple of years that went by there where I was just like, it's over. The darkness is coming, but <laughs> <This is laughs> there's no way out. And then I found the angle. I was like, I found Bitcoin. I found coding, which I took to and love. And I was just like, oh, this is this is the underbelly. Like this is where they're vulnerable, and it's going to be a long story. I remember talking to uh, you know some some friends of mine who were getting me into coding in Bitcoin. Um, 2015 is when I started really you know seeing both, um, 
And they were talking about this as just like, oh, this thing's just going to like come in and just like crush the financial system. And it's going to be over in like, you know, like five years, we'll be on a Bitcoin standard. And I was like, this sounds like a 70 year war. 70. It sounds like a 70 year war. This sounds like a multi-generational task. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be hiatuses, that there won't be moments of, you know, the eye of the storm being calm and feelings of we battles. There will be battles that will be short lived. But I think to actually overturn the system that is currently in existence is going to take multiple generations. And the reason I say that is not because of the technology. It's not because of the, the protocols and systems that are in place. It's because of the minds. You cannot change the mind of a 50-year-old person, 60-year-old person, 70-year-old person. You can't even change the mind of a 25-year-old person anymore. You have to get them young. Yeah. Right. This is about the children, and I, it's so cliche to say that, but now that I have one, it like is really starting to hit home. It's like we cannot create the world that we want to exist without two generations of children at least. No, I agree. completely agree. Right? It was Lenin who I think pioneered that statement: "Give me two generations of children, and I'll give you a nation of communists." Yeah. Hey, give me two generations of children, and I'll give you a nation of sovereign individuals. It won't be a nation though anymore. <laughs> It'll just be sovereign individuals. And, but you do need those multi-generations. I agree. I agree. And if you think like Bitcoin is a multi-century, potentially millennia uh, age project where it's going to extend itself and, and be around far longer than we are on this planet. Yeah. I mean, it's almost selfish to, to want <laughs> everything out of the box from Bitcoin for our generation. Right? Like, there's no way you could... Yes, it would be incredible. And that's like my biggest beef with Bitcoin's lazy critics and even some Bitcoiners as well is that it's not a medium of exchange, unit of account, it's got volatility. It's like, you're not going to get that out of the box nor are you going to win out of the box. It's going to take work. It's going to take building and it's going to take time. Like, yeah. and you just, as a Bitcoiner, as an individual out there, maybe listening to this podcast or wanting to usher in a Bitcoin standard, you have to re re resign yourself to the possibility that it doesn't happen until after you're gone. And that's okay. Yeah, it is. It, there's, a, there's a little bit of a sadness to it. There's a little bit of a sadness to me when I think about that. Um, but it did change when I had my daughter. It wasn't as sad. It was, I don't know, different emotion. I know. I, I, I can't articulate it either, but I know the emotion you're just trying to describe. I tear up at the thought of her and her children being free. Yeah. It's not even about me anymore. I, this is so much lower time preference than that. And I couldn't viscerally experience that until I had a kid. Yeah. Right? A lot of people talk about how having kids changes your life. And, and it is for everyone. And in some similar ways and some different ways. But for me, it wasn't about the schedule and the waking up at night. That, all, that was easily predictable. Maybe not by everybody, but I saw that coming. Right? That didn't affect my life at all. What it changed was I was already a low time preference thinker, right? When I was six years old, I was buying Power Rangers that I never took out of the box because I thought they might be collectibles one day. Like I've always been an investor and a low time preference thinker, right? And I understand that things take a long time. Big, good things do not happen overnight. They take a very long time to build or else they're not big, good things. If they can happen overnight, then you're talking about something else. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that, you know, I, I was okay with that. Even when we embarked on Start 9, 
the not-so-humble mission of reinventing the internet and personal computing for the sovereign era, I understood that that was not going to be a five to 10 year thing. And I told our seed round investors the same thing. I said, if you're expecting an exit in five years, we're not the investment for you. It has nothing to do with what we're considering right now. We need the money to build the future. If we build the future, more money will happen as a consequence, not as a goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is to build the future we want, (laughs) right? And so that's what you're investing in. And if you think that that will result in a return, then great. But if not, then don't invest because we're never going to, you know, uh, we're never going to prioritize quarterly profits over the vision of my granddaughter's future. Right. So, so uh, I'm, I'm even more okay with it now because not only do am I on board, but I have this child now that gives me this perspective and this emotion that I didn't have before, but we're backed by people who are supporting that same vision. I don't just mean our investors. I mean, every member of the company are the people who have bought into our, our vision and our, our community. Yeah. Our community is awesome. Well, they're not just users of our product. They are like passionate supporters who became that way, not because of me talking on a podcast like this, but because they got it and then it worked and then they had questions and then we helped and then we were building trust, right? But making it such that if you ever stop trusting us, you'll be just fine. Yeah. We're building the, the, the exit routes along the way. I mean, we've got some of the start nine community in the comments here. Um, look at this. This is the way. Uh, no, it's it's going to take time, freaks. One day at a time, one embassy at a time, like just Rip. one person at a time, one mind at a time, one child at a time. Like it's going to take time, but it's going to be so fucking worth it. But you know what's what's good about that acknowledgement? That sort of, and maybe I'm wrong, okay? But this is how I've accepted this, and I'm a I'm a runner. I, you know, I was shorter distance when I was young, and then I pivoted to half marathon, which is my main event now. And I do it competitively and I do it seriously. And one of the things that I had to teach my athletes, because I was also a coach for seven years, and to, and really ingrain in myself is settle in. It's a long race, right? Even the half mile is a long race. Like you've got to be strategic. You don't just come out firing. We laugh at people who go out sprinting the first hundred meters of a marathon because we know what's going to happen. Right? They're, I'm excited. And the crowd who also doesn't understand might be like, look at that guy. Mm-hmm. Wow, they're amazing. They're unsustainable. Yeah. Right? Mile 23, their, their hands are on their knees. Yeah. They're taking a little break. And we have some opinions about others who are partially trying to do what we're doing. And we very much view it as that sprinter in the first half mile of the marathon. Yeah. This is a long race. And the foundation matters. It has to be solid, secure, uh, scalable. Uh, we have now rewritten from scratch our operating system three times in two years. And it's not uh, some simple fork of an OS that we added a script to to install things. It's an operating system. Like it is a, is a massive piece of software. <laughs> it's massive. Um, so anyway, I just, I say that only to, to drive the point home that like, it's very easy to pretend to be doing something important in the Bitcoin crypto sovereignty space right now, because everyone's looking at the marketing material. Mm -hmm. Everyone is listening to the rhetoric. There are very few things that are of, of substance that are scalable, that are viable. And it's really hard to tell the difference. For somebody, unless you really know how to do your own research, 
or you have people that you trust that can do the research. Um, and ultimately, it just takes time. It just takes time. Bad things crumble. Good things, you know, don't. Yeah. Things with staying power will be here through time. No, it's the thing. It's like a, it's like a fractal type thing. Like what you just described, you can apply it to Bitcoin versus shitcoins. They uh, apply it to the Bitcoin self-sovereign stacks. Um, you, know, you can apply it to like high time preference society versus the low time preference society put forth by Ron Paul. Um, it's going to take time. That's that's the other thing too. Like the the nature of believing in low time preference not only that but implementing into your life is being okay with seeing the sprinters of the world uh, run past you and and having the confidence uh and it's, the, the, it's, it's invigorating right and the um <laughs> confidence and the patience to understand like hey they made that decision i'm making another strategic decision that's gonna help me miles down the road yeah. we'll see you at mile 10. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, what yeah, well, mile are we at right now? We'll see. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, that's a great question. Yeah. Four. Four. I don't know. We're we're a quarter of the way. You know, I it, look. It's been a it's been over a decade. Yeah. If you start with Bitcoin, which yeah. I think you can go back a little further, but um, you Maybe. know, even to some of the experimentation in the '90s with you know PGP the, and all yeah, that and the hash cash and like it was, but those were. You know, the, the, we didn't really start until Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the first viable, like, means of defense. Um, so if you started there, yeah, I mean, maybe a quarter at best. Yeah, it's crazy thing. We're, we're 13. No, I mean, 13 years past the white paper, almost 13 years past the launch. That's a lot of time. It's over a decade. We're almost a decade and a half into this, which is crazy to think. And we're still doing uh, base layer protocol development that will not see application, viable application usage for years, potentially. Yeah. Right. That's a little tie preference. Yeah, I'm just I think we're we're still building out the capabilities of the thing, let alone the the application of those capabilities, right? Like what Taproot affords won't be fully realized for years. Yeah. That's gonna take it's gonna take time. Exert some patience, freaks. Uh, we were talking about Ron Paul. I want to go back to Ron Paul. Because I have a friend, shout out JR. Uh, he's a mass hole. He swears that in his particular county, they just like didn't count Ron Paul votes. Like he personally went door to door and asked who they voted for. his neighbors who they voted for in his county. They said they had like zero yeah. votes for Ron Paul. And he went door to door and asked people um, and had like at least dozens of people say, I voted for him. He's a hero. And he, he, he will be remembered as an American hero. Uh, I, I certainly agree with that. But I think the election meddling stuff, it's real. It's real. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't have that personal proof, but it would shock me if it wasn't. The Wiki really WikiLeaks email. We can go to the WikiLeaks uh, Clinton dump. Yeah. They proved that the DNC and her versus Bernie, like they were actively manipulating those elections and the platforms. You know, you know, when it comes to stuff like that, I guess the reason why I almost dismissively am just like, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Sure, it makes sense. But is like, I actually, so for a while there, I got really into like trying to figure out the truth. <laughs> Like, what's really going on here, you know? And I realized it is a losing game because I don't can't trust any of the information, right? Sure, WikiLeaks comes out with some stuff and maybe you can trust that because it was a leak and sure. But it's not the whole picture. It's it's a slice of what's happening. You To understand the whole picture, you really have to go down the like deep, dark conspiracy theory rabbit hole. 
And, and then it's, and here's the thing. That's very I, dark. You want to talk about darkness. I know. And I don't even use that term as like derogatory to call somebody a conspiracy theorist. What I do is I almost feel a little bit of pity. I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, let's say you go down this hole and you come to all these conclusions that may or may not be true, right? What, what is different? Like, have you, how have you contributed? <laughs> right? Like, is your, are you happier? Have you benefited yourself? Anyone in your life or society at all? Like, what was the benefit? Now, I'm not saying don't educate yourself. What I'm saying is, is I don't need to know the gritty truth of everything. I can literally, from a bird's eye view, look out at the world and be like, fucked. I don't need to know exactly what's wrong with it, right? Because I know the essence of what's wrong with it. And the essence of what's wrong with it is the outsourcing of judgment, the outsourcing of thinking, right? The utilization of tools and technology for purposes of control, manipulation, like the corruption at the highest levels of the world. I know all that's true. I don't care who did what or it's like the solution is the same for me. Build the alternative system that sets incentives properly such that those types of people and systems do not emerge from the protocol, right? Like what we have today is exactly what the incentives point to. Right. You could have gone back in time and been like, here's the rule set, here's the consensus rules we laid down for society. Here's what it's going to produce. Done. Fascism. It ends there. That's it. Right? That's the end of the road. It was never going to go anywhere but there. It just needed time. So what you have to do is build a, a different s system with a different set of incentives, and you know where it leads. It leads to the sovereign individual. And so, yeah. and so I'm just like, let's just build that shit. Yeah. I'm sick of worrying about who did what and why and everything. Let's just build it. Well, somebody who's uh, been a a chronic warrior went deep into those dark places. I've been there too. That's why I know not to go there. <laughs> do not. Yeah. I mean, you can go, go explore, but always know it's like the, uh, no one to hang up the phone and be like, all right, I've seen enough. Like, yeah. let's go build something that yeah. and like, there's, there's only so much complaining. I do a lot of it. And, uh, uh attempting to shake people awake that you can do before you drive yourself crazy. Like this is much more fulfilling. It's much more potent and effective as well, more importantly. Um, I hope, yeah. I mean, look, it's the same reason I don't, uh, I don't think about the origin of space and time in the universe anymore. Ooh. I went there, right? I, I did that when I was you know, younger and still do from time to time, depending on if I ingest anything that helps with that process. But like, um, that's not part of my daily operating system. No. Because again, it's the same thing as the conspiracy theory conclusions. It's like, what are you gonna do differently? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, if you're in the simulation, there's nothing much yeah. you can do. So, so I'm just like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. And I'm a philosopher. And my philosophy is I don't care because I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and I still have the choice to either do something and believe that my life has purpose and build and gain fulfillment from sharing those experiences with loved ones, or I'm gonna wake up the next day and be pissed, poor, sad, and you know, whatever. And it's like, I, I don't, I just choose the former. I just choose it. I have no proof that it's the right choice, right? It just feels good. Yeah, like it's not, it's not hedonism either. It's not just, it feels good. I'm gonna do whatever feels good. It's like, consider the alternative. Here's your life. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> are you going to spend your entire life seeking, you know, the, 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 the truth of metaphysics and the truth of, you know, conspiracy in government? Or are you going to spend it building cool shit that makes, this, that makes your life and the lives of others better? Yeah, well, that, that's funny you said hedonism, right? Because like the other, if you go down that dark place, 
and you come to the conclusion that all this stuff is happening. There's nothing I can do about it. And the default would be like, all right, I'm just going to be a hedonistic. Fuck it. If they're not, they're not playing by the rules. I'm not either. I'm going to go do drugs, party. But that's not, that doesn't work. And then, right? Yeah. And the other side is knowledge and accept it and live a, a more fulfilling life of virtue that, that uplifts everybody and doesn't have this sort of nihilistic, screw it, they're doing it, we should do it too type of mentality. Yeah, I don't, I don't converse with nihilists. They're out there, man. Sure. And they're good people. They're good, intelligent people, but they're not helping. <laughs> yeah, what are you? How could you be a nihilist, though? And how could... Well, if, if everything is shit and everything's going to be shit and you're a speck on the edge of the universe that doesn't matter and your life has no purpose and government's corrupt and unbeatable, then, I mean, how could you be anything but? Yeah. So my, and it's not even that any of that stuff is untrue. It's that it's not part of my consciousness. Fuck all that truth. That's not what I think about. I just choose to believe that, that life is, is meaningful and has great purpose and that humans are capable and good and that building uh, is worthwhile and I build and I enjoy it, right? Yeah, now and, we're gonna get deep into a philosophical, you choose to believe that, but I think is there an argument to be made that it's inherent? Well, both properties are inherent to a descent, to a, an extent, right? They're both true. It's what, what Schrodinger's view of the world, right? Are you gonna go nihilist or? So I, um, I, was, raised, I was raised Jewish. Uh, yeah. I am not a, a practicing uh, religious person. Now, I am a fairly spiritual person. Very common thing for people to say. It's unique to everybody. I get it. It's very cliche, whatever. But something that has stuck with me from uh, when I was younger is my rabbi at the time had given a speech, and he said something that caught my ear, and I made him write it down for me afterwards because I wanted to have it. And so he, on the same piece of paper, wrote two things. One said, I am but ashes and dust. And the underneath it, it said, for me, the universe was created. Total opposites, okay? That everything exists, not for humanity, for you. That the whole universe was a conspiracy to create you and your life in this moment in time and space. And the other end of that spectrum is you're, you're just dirt dust <laughs> on the edge of the universe and there's nothing. And he goes, these are both true. And he ripped it in half and gave me both sides of it. I love that. I love They're that. both true. It's not right. either or. So stop trying to figure out which one it is and get on with your life. Yeah. We're never going to understand that mystery. That mystery is beyond our comprehension. It's like an ant trying to understand a human. It's never going to happen. Well, and I think there's an aspect too, like understanding that we are uh, comparatively, relatively just dust in this universe empowers you to recognize that, oh, I am special. And the fact that I have consciousness and I've been giving me the, the ability and the facilities to go try and do something, even though I'm a speck of dust. Mm -hmm. Like you can have that speck of dust can have profound impact on the world. You know what invigorates me is the thought of, so stars are just these, you know, massive furnaces, right? And they're mm -hmm. just producing, uh, you know, the, the higher elements and then supernova and they just blow it all over and you end up with solar systems and galaxies, right? So you have this, this process and if you follow that process through the creation, you know, the formation of these, bo these bodies of mass and then, you know, uh, gases and then some spark of life happens somehow, which we don't fully understand yet, and single-celled organisms evolve into humans. 
What that means is that the entire universe is this like massively complex blast furnaces that ultimately are resulting in conscious life. Okay, and the highest conscious life that we are aware of is humans. So by that logic, humans are the like we're we're not dust against the stars. We're what the stars conspired to create. Like the universe like did everything it could to make us, right? And that is just like to to talk about humans, like when's the last time you heard the phrase human nature used as a positivism? It's been a while. Nobody uses that phrase positively. If, yeah. if somebody says that's human nature, they are literally making a derogatory statement. Yeah, because it's something you should try to control. Yeah. yeah, don't do human nature. But based on the explanation that I just gave, human nature is is the most glorious thing in the universe because it is what the universe is has set out to create, right? Yeah, it's the um, I forget who said it, but it's like the quote like. Uh, humans are universe's recognition of itself or something like that. Like the, it's the product. It's yeah. like, it's, it's attempt to see itself. And I know we're getting, we're getting off. We're getting cosmic. It's been a while since we've gotten cosmic on this podcast. Um, <laughs> this is, that was a phrase that we used often in the beginning of the show, but I'm happy that we're getting cosmic here, Matt. You know why I'm happy about this is because it is necessary to round out the narrative of what's happening right now with this, because you cannot underestimate the effect that low self-esteem has on a populace's ability to defend itself, okay? So the whole, the whole like climate change narrative, okay, let's talk about, I don't wanna talk about climate change. I wanna talk about what psychological effects that has on people that are often overlooked or underestimated, which is that if you tell children from a very young age when they are susceptible to, and they're building out their, their self-esteem and their, their consciousness, and you tell them, we are destroying our planet. We are these evil things that produce pollution. Look how horrible that factory is. It's destroying the planet. That nature is beautiful. Humans are ugly. What you are doing is you are implanting the seeds of low self-esteem into individuals and you hammer this narrative home. And so what happens is there, you don't even necessarily think about it on a daily basis, but there's this underlying feeling that you're not really worthy of glory. You're not really worthy of being free and, and living the kind of life that is appropriate for a human being because you don't really deserve it. Why? Because of original sin. Mm-hmm. You're just a dirty human and you're just, you're killing everything around you and your nature sucks and you have to try to control it. And it is insidious what that does to the resolve of a people, especially in a crisis. You deserve to die. Yeah. So guess what? We just surrender. We just lay down arms and we just take what's coming to us because it's been it's been coming. And I think that this is a very important and missing piece, largely missing, not everyone, but a missing piece of this entire Bitcoin digital self-sovereignty, you know, libertarian-based movement of human rights is that you have to believe that humans deserve rights. And so convincing people that they are the the product of a conspiracy of a cosmic conspiracy of the stars to create us, not to destroy us, that we outshine the stars is important because it gives you the feeling that you deserve this bright future. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that was it's kind of beautifully, beautifully put cars pumping fists over here in the corner. No, and it's, 
And that maybe that's like the, the, the thing that's darkest right now is that uh, you have a society that's self-loathing to a degree and to an extent people are so self-loathing that they, uh, they lash out against the other and they're, they, they think that humans are inherently evil and there are some humans that are even more hu- evil if they act a certain way um, and they need to control their nature um, to, to get into line with, with what they deem is, is virtuous. Uh, we're seeing it obviously with all the COVID shit with vaccines and all that stuff. Um, and, and even, even more micro, like the Kyle Rittenhouse shit earlier this week, Aaron Rodgers last week, uh, pick a black lives matter, uh, Colin Kaepernick, like all these little inconsequential I don't want to call them inconsequential, but uh, probably better labeled as distractions, getting us yeah, away so from ancillary narratives that are yeah they're meaningful though in terms of their effect. Yes. Right? it's this doling effect that we were talking about at the beginning. This like wear them down effect. It's you can just break the morale of an individual or of a, of a people of a movement by just by just making it dull. It's been it's bane. It's just. You know, um, and we've seen it. It's an old story, actually. Yeah, it's the oldest story in the book. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. And that's like, again, another thread that I was pulling on Whitney earlier this morning. Is like, how do we get people out of that or into the mindset of understanding that they're being actively divided and conquered uh, against each other? Um, It it goes back a little bit. So, So educating on the nature of the problem is important, okay? Educating on the nature of the solution is also important. But the undertone of any real movement is moral in nature, okay? You cannot win a battle unless you feel that you are fighting for a righteous cause. And we're missing that a little bit. We're still arguing up here. We're talking about politics and economics and sort of utilitarian solutions and, you know, sound money creates, and that's all important. But do you deserve all of this? Why do you? Why should you care? Are you willing to fight for it? Are you willing to persevere through, through challenge? Because it's not going to be an overnight victory. And those who were expecting this to be a, a clean swipe are in for a very rude awakening when the incumbent system is willing to blow the house up rather than let somebody else have it, yeah. right? And that is a terrifying thought, but it can, it, it's not insurmountable. No, and this leads me to... The phrase, and I've never really thought about it this way, but you have to win hearts and minds. Like you win the minds by explaining the economic theory behind Bitcoin and how it works. And you win the mind by basically creating a logical string of, of thought that says, all right, this makes sense. Winning the heart, that's a whole nother thing, right? Like how do you win yeah. somebody's uh, fire to, to move forward and to focus that fire on certain things? What Bitcoin has done well over the past 13 years is win the minds of people who had the heart. Mm-hmm. I, yes. Okay. I would certainly agree with they, that. They weren't lacking the heart. That's kind of the point. That's why they took to it. That's why they understood it, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't a lucky investment. It was a recognition of something real and necessary. And so, but now we're entering the, the next rung and their hearts aren't there. Yeah, we, I, have to, I, we have to light the fire on their I hearts. Don't, I don't even know if it's the hearts aren't there. It's the, the understanding of, it's, it's the deeper aspects of philosophy are missing, right? Even if they understand some of the economic principles at stake, 
It's that it's it's the emotional complex. It's the years of beratement by the education system and by you know society at large and media as there's constantly degrading humanity, constantly you know enforcing this idea that we are dirty and ugly and need to be controlled. And oh my God, if freedom happened, everyone would just like kill each other. There's a movie called The Purge, and it's like one night a year there's no laws and everyone murders each other. And I'm like. <laughs> That is the worst image of humanity, and it's a complete fucking lie. It is a complete lie. People aren't like that. People just want to barbecue and hang out with their friends. Like <laughs> right. Everyone all around the world, that's <laughs> all they want, is to just be left alone and be able to pursue their passions and build things and have fun with loved ones. Nobody wants to murder anyone. The only reason, except sociopaths, right? There's yeah. like, like a couple extremely rare people who are just, evil people and guess who's feeding you the lies that's what i'm saying is that it's 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 the the incentives of the system promoted the worst of humanity into positions of power and there's nothing you can do to replace that like every election cycle is just like you're gonna get the sociopaths that person and that person i'm like they're both sociopaths dude. (laughs) they just they're just pitching a different narrative yeah but it's the same type of person and so to fix that you have to go deeper than politics you have to fix the moral outlook of humanity of an individual's life of the sanctity of that life that it should have dignity and you need to give it teeth right the libertarian movement has been largely impotent because it lacks teeth it has Mm -hmm. always lacked teeth right i hate going to i shouldn't say i hate I experience a degree of disappointment every time I'm at a libertarian party or gathering or meetup because it's just a lot of talk. Yeah, libertarians, libertarians. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's just a lot, of, and and they're and I'm the realist libertarian, and that person's not a real libertarian, and it doesn't doesn't matter. Nobody's doing anything, yeah. right? A movement has to have teeth, and in this world, teeth is control over information. This is an information war. So you want to fight back, you have to take back the information and the channels of communication and the data, right? This is about Bitcoin is, is you know, largely viable because it is pure information, right? We've taken money and made it information. It's not physical in nature. Um, but that was just the, like, the stab that broke open the, the gateway, right? But if we want to win the future, we have to take back the informational... Uh, infrastructure of this planet. Yeah. Wow. You're making things very clear right now, Matt. I mean, I, I think like this philosophical approach and get, and again, it's one thing me personally and many other Bitcoiners, but focus on like, fi- focus on the uh, economic basics and the technical basics. Like Bitcoin works from an economic perspective because it, it, it is sound money uh, and it's, it's got all those properties, it's technological innovation because it enables this distributed system that works. You can audit it. Yeah, but why do we want this? We want this because we deserve it as mm-hmm. humans. We, we are good. Mm-hmm. We are, are not a scourge on this earth. We deserve to flourish and have a high quality of life. And that's underlying everything that, that most Bitcoiners are focusing on. Yes. And that's... But not talking about that much. I do hear it. Um but it's not the main onboarding process for new people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's largely absent from the, the welcome message, the welcome party. Right? It doesn't go straight to humanity, 
humans are glorious. What yeah. do you mean? <laughs> it's, it's about the economics, which again is attractive to some people who already sort of have that understanding, but it's also attractive to people who don't have that understanding and see a quick buck, mm-hmm. right? It's the weak hands and the, you know, speculative shit coiners. And it's, it's like, we don't want a proliferation of that. And in order to, to fight back against that, it needs to be uh, ideological in nature, right? There needs to be this. And, and I think this partly comes out in what has become, come to be known as sort of toxic maximalism, right? This mm-hmm. idea that like, we're, we're fighting an ideolo- on an ideological front, um, but the ideology is still living at the upper echelons of philosophy. So mm-hmm. from a philosophic pyramid, right? You have metaphysics, epistemology, uh, ethics, politics, mm-hmm. right? And we're fighting at the political level. Politics and economics are sort of intertwined, two sides of the same coin, right? So we're fighting at the political level. And sometimes we get down to the moral level, right? But it really actually needs to go deeper, right? I, I, like, I hate to say this, but like, we have to be having epistemological and metaphysical debates. We need to be talking about like, is reality perceivable by, by a human being, right? Like, or is it all just a subjective pr- projection of your own imagination? It's like that debate has to happen in Bitcoin conversations because the second somebody says, well, there is no, there's no way a human being, a human mind can perceive reality accurately. What you've done is you've, you've taken away our, our teeth. Agency. Our, yeah. It's like, well then, well, then what, you're, you're all just, everything's faded. You can't discover anything for yourself. You're a weak, pathetic little thing that needs to be told what to do. It leads to the same politics. So you have to fight this on every level of philosophy. Um, and, and it gets tough because these layers, like any layers of a system, a foundation of a home, you start getting into the foundation of a home and you risk the whole thing collapsing. You can really fuck with people, yeah. right? Like you can shake their world up. That's why I always just, <laughs> I, I've always found my, my biggest uh, philosophical underpinnings are anchored in cogito ergo seal. Like, I think therefore I am oh, like, sure. yeah. I think that's like, if I can think, you know, eh, is thinking perception. I don't know. Maybe, like yeah. if I could think we can have conversations, we can understand each other, yeah. have a back and forth. You're thinking mm-hmm. you're reacting to my thoughts. I think there is a reality. And I've had, and I've had people come to me and say, well, but you, you don't even know I exist. You could be talking to me right now and, you know, you are having this experience, but it's like totally in your head. And I go, so I don't give a shit if you're right, imaginary person I'm talking to. Like, I don't care Yeah. because it, it has no, like, what am I going to do? Let's say it's true. Can I, do I have access to this thing? If you're inside of a system, and if you can't tell you me, you cannot then... control the system. Yeah. You're in the system, so accept your reality, whether it's real or not. Who cares, right? So this is kind of what I was saying before. It's like I don't think about this stuff on a daily basis. I enjoy these types of conversations because you revisit it and you get new insights over time. But to make it part of your existence on a daily basis is very disruptive, and to come to the wrong conclusion is nihilistic. It results in this apathy, this sense of just like, well, we can't know anything for real and reality's not even real anyway and we're speckled us, so why do anything? So um, I have these talks a lot, but here's why I talked about kids earlier, is ultimately, see, I was pretty aggressive 
for years when it came to like engaging in these types of debates with people, mm -hmm. right? Like trying to like convince somebody that they're good. Oh, you're, you're good. No, I'm evil. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know I mean? like human nature is evil and I'm not exempt from that. No, you're great. <laughs> and reality is here, believe it or not. I, I used to have a lot of those. And what I realized that it was, it was a completely losing battle because these foundations are so integral to the, to the brain. Like without the assistance of, of psychedelics or something that allows you to sort of like dig deeper and do some rewiring, you can't rewire the brain. It's not a matter of just, I used to believe this and now I believe this because everything that exists on top of those has, it's like building infrastructure. Again, it's like you build an entire economy on top of a, a, a one idea or assumption. If you change that assumption, the entire economy collapses. It's mm -hmm. the same thing with the human brain. So I focus on the kids. I'm sorry, but the adult population is not who this is for. Those of us who get it and want to build it need to be doing everything that we can, but the dominant portion of our efforts when it comes to philosophic discussion, right? The Socratic type of just, the, you know, discussing ideas and pursuing knowledge, it has to be had with kids, not yeah. adults. Yeah, agreed. And we have to get get to them early. This is like, it's like, get to the kids early. I was like, uh, how do you like? Get to the kids early. Yes, it's a, it's <laughs> it's a very like, strange thing to say. Yeah, but, but like. Someone's trying to get to them. I mean, I mean, the, the, the dominant power structure has gotten to them. If you, particularly if you send your kids to public school, it dominates the framework by which they yeah. view the world. And they're being taught. They're not really being taught. They're being indoctrinated uh, at these at these indoctrination camps, as, as some people like to refer to them now. My, um, my wife was a, a public school teacher for four years and a private school teacher for three before leaving the profession altogether. Um, so I'm actually quite, I was a, high school track coach for seven years in my off time just because mm -hmm. I love track and I love teenagers and coaching them and I, I love kids. They're awesome. And um, we like have a very inside track on on it. Plus I went through that system. Yeah, um, I did as well. I went to public school until high school. Yeah, it is it is uh, broken Yeah, it, or, or extremely effective depending on what you want it to do, right? Like mm -hmm. it's actually not broken at all if your estate is trying to beat human beings into uh, subservient factory workers. Uh, yeah. But it is a complete failure of what humanity deserves uh, if you believe that we are creative good beings uh, with unlimited potential. So Yeah, no, I mean, now, now I'm getting angry. Now you factor in like the, the forced mas masking of children at these impressible ages. Like how does that, that's what we're up against right now. Um, they're getting to the kids and so my wife, my wife them. left the education system when this happened. Because, really? yeah, in, in large part, there was many considerations that we talked about together, but in large part because she couldn't stand being this authority figure in a classroom that was making kids, you know, sit behind plexiglass, wearing masks, staying six feet apart or sitting in silence in a, in a gymnasium. And, and she was just like, she's like, this is eerie. It's like, it's like, it's not just sad. It's like, it feels we're in a uh, movie or some shit like that. It feels sick. It like is sick. It is you know, sick. It's, it's and and I feel really bad for the kids right now. Um, and it's not just masks, right? It, it just there's so much confusion. If you say like you're a 16 year old right now, 
right at that time in your life when you are starving for meaning and understanding. People talk about teenagers being, you know, reckless, blah, blah, blah. It's because they're not getting what they need, okay? It's their way of crying. Mm-hmm. Just like a baby cries when you don't give it milk. You don't give a teenager philosophy, it's going to scream at you because you're not giving it a reason for life. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what is my purpose? What am I doing here? Those are when those questions start to arise. And we're depriving them of that and saying, shut up and do your homework. And it's fucking evil. It is it is this meat factory that is taking what is supposed to be, in my mind, the most glorious thing in the universe and turning it into like, and trying to like pound it into a slug, right? It's that, you know what, um, man, when I was little, did you ever see, watch The Little Mermaid? Yeah. Do you know when at the end, Ursula takes her father and turns him into the like, well, the like little brown or gray worm thing yeah, that she yeah. has, the emotion of that? That you have this like glorious entity that she worships and everyone looks up to. He's like the the, the ideal of of a man. He's 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 benevolent. He's powerful. He's capable, and he's reduced to this hideous little thing under the control of a incompetent, nasty person. And it's like to me that is the essence of tragedy. It's like th- you take the greatest and you make it into nothing. What's greater than the potential that a child has it's, to it's grow like, into something, right? If, right. If, if humans are the greatest thing since the stars, then a child is, is the greatest of us. Is the greatest of us because it has the most potential. And to take that and pound it into submission a is, face, is an affront against. Pound it into like a faceless yeah, it, drone. It, it, is, it is a. Literally. They're masks, they're putting masks over the face. So like you don't like have the ability to to recognize another individual. You're all yeah. you're just like a faceless mask. And and I, I I bury all that and I put it into my work. Yeah. And I code faster. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't just undo this shit. You cannot elect a different person. You cannot lobby your politicians to get some clause out of some bill that's gonna pass. You cannot win by playing their game. The only way that you can change the future is to build an alternative system that has better incentives. And that takes decades. So settle in. Settle in, freaks. (laughs) Settle in. And come to terms with that, it's okay. Have some kids too. Definitely have some kids, I highly recommend it. Have some kids. Car, we were talking about that earlier, kids. Um, Let's end it there, let's go plug this in, let's go. Get one step closer to the future. Matt, this is an incredible conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. I'm very happy with where this went. Um, Is there anywhere we should point the freaks before we leave here? Yeah, just check out our website if you're interested in learning more. Start9.com. Humans are worth it. You're a good person. You're meant to be on this planet. You're meant to do great things. Live your life like that. Peace and love, freaks. Take care.